and it was just tough. Like I, like I said, I had no motivation. Um, didn't want to do anything. Everything that I drove through Vegas, I had memories of this place, memories of that place. Oh, I remember when we were in love and da 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 da, and and dealing with all these emotions and totally. stuff. And obviously, it was a, a very low and dark time in my life. But you know, uh, and and this is where we, we kind of talk about how this this you know walk talk America and stuff, and how people will will claim guns take lives or whatever. But the fact is, one of the things that got me through that divorce was every week. I knew that for a couple hours on that Saturday, I was going to get to go to the range and turn my brain off to everything I was dealing with because I was going to be around a group of guys that I had a good time with. I was going to be focusing on the stages, resetting targets, coming up with stage plans, executing them. And all. like it for me, that was like the one time of the week that I really worked towards because and I, and I just kept fighting to get to that day because Every time I left the range that time, uh, throughout that time, I felt a little bit better about what I was doing because I I had a, a ray of sunshine hit my face for a couple hours. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just gotta inspire people to believe that mental health community and the firearms industry has spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Yes, I think we finally pulled off a decent intro. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I, feel, I feel included. so, I feel so sexy now. Well, like I'm, what I'm, do you mean I'm now? feeling sexy. In, I'm feeling sexy in an elevator just with that kind of music going on. It's oh, like, okay, yeah, I, I I'm, like, ready, I'm ready. To, I'm ready to go hit the pool. So, I mean, <laughs> a man of your stature, I assume you'd feel sexy all the time, not just now, but uh, you know. Uh, well, you know, you come across as pretty self-centered and uh, egotistical when you say that out loud. So, uh, there are very few times I don't feel sexy. Uh, where did Mike go? Mike just up and left. If you're watching on YouTube, Mike just disappeared. <laughs> I'm sure he'll come back. Maybe, sort of. I hope so. God knows what'll happen if I have to carry the show. Well, with us today is uh, John McLean. No, not that one. Uh, unless you are thinking of this one, then it is this one. Um, John, hello. You're a competition shooter. Uh, you're Team Arms Corps. More than that, uh, feel free to introduce the rest of yourself, please. Yeah, uh, so I- I've been shooting competitively for about uh, 11, uh, 11 years now. Um, was picked up by, by mo- several sponsors to begin with, but Team Arms Corps uh, was by far the biggest and most supportive that um, that I, I I brought on board first, and they they really helped me expand and become the the shooter and the person that I am today. Um, so a lot of credit goes to them, and I work with a lot of amazing companies. Um, you know, Sound Gear, Vortex Optics. Uh, I mean, there's there's quite a laundry list of them, and I didn't I didn't make one. So, um, but on top of that, the the one thing that I think I have a pretty um, interesting perspective about, especially since we're talking about mental health, is that I did EMS. Uh, for eight years in Las Vegas, Nevada. So a very high volume system, um, lots of turnaround as far as patient contacts and uh, and transports. And uh, 
you know, there, there was a lot of stuff that I saw that when, when I was grateful enough to get a, a spot uh, within the Arms Corps and Rock Island Armored Company to actually become an employee for them, uh, I had to jump at it because I was, I was very burnt out on the EMS world. And unfortunately, it was just because a lot of the politics that, that go on and, and um, just, just how, how things are treated in the EMS world. Um, so I was, I was very thankful and, and good and, and grateful to, to get out of EMS to come into the firearms industry. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a little bit about what I've done and, uh, and all that fun stuff. And that concludes our podcast. Thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey uh, John, do, do a lot of people uh, that are in that field gravitate towards the firearms industry? Did you have like colleagues that you guys would talk about firearms? You know, there, there were a ton of, co- I mean, I think, Almost everyone. I mean, obviously, there were a few that uh, were a little bit like kind of the liberal left left leaning, um, you know, EMS personnel that that didn't like firearms, didn't want to be around firearms or anything like that. But for the majority of them, um, you know, we we see what goes out there. And and unfortunately, we see the worst in humanity. We see what humans can do to each other and are willing to do to each other, um, sometimes on purpose, sometimes because of mental facilities not being there or medical conditions, you know, something's like the a diabetic patient, for example, that becomes hypoglycemic and their blood sugar drops too low, they'll swing at you. They'll they'll straight on try to take your head off, but they don't realize what they're doing to them. Like they're just fighting something because they're so confused. So uh, the majority of us, and and you're not even uh, allowed to carry. Obviously, it, it, you know it would sound bad if a uh, ambulance worker shoots <laughs> patient. <laughs> That's yeah. Doesn't really That's not make a good hide. Uh, um, yeah, exactly right. Um, so we don't we don't carry concealed on on the job, but uh, obviously with with our uh, relationship that we have with law enforcement and the the nursing facilities and, and doctors and stuff like that. I mean, a majority of them did. Um, we're, we're pretty heavy in the firearms industry. Whether it was owning concealed carry, you know, taking training. I mean, that was when um, I don't know if you guys remember Zert, the Zombie Eradication Response Team, when that was huge. Like. The, the amount of people in EMS that got involved with that, because not just from a shooting perspective, but also from bringing the, the trauma medical side of it, you know, they, they almost kind of brought something to Zert um, on top of their staff that they could, they could add on. But uh, yeah, I mean, EMS and firearms are like, they're almost like, uh, you know, uh, lamb and tuna fish. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating because in my profession of mental health we we're not we're the opposite demographic um there's an overwhelming percentage of us who don't do anything with firearms and i would suspect that many of us are uh opposed uh to guns and and i don't know why that is uh because it's healthcare, you know so you think well you could draw it down the healthcare line but it's not it's not uh we're like the soft sciences you know liberal arts maybe i, I don't really know um but but it's definitely not that. And I do, what I do know is that the few of us who are in this profession who carry guns, wear guns, shoot guns across the spectrum are closeted. You know, this is a, kind of a, become the apocryphal story of Jake about how he, I had to come out of the closet as a firearms owning practitioner when I joined up with Walk to Talk America just to make it all make sense because I wasn't going to walk in both worlds with one of them being silent. Uh, so... So that was a that was a big step for me, and the reason it was a big step is because I'd known for well, I was 2019. By then, I'd been licensed for seven years, and I'd been working for I don't know nine or so. And I, I'd heard the whispers. I'd, I'd been in the 
uh, in the various circles of uh, professional colleagues who condescended and made you know nasty remarks and cast aspersions at gun violence and gun crime and gun owners and I couldn't understand how these people you know these people can do that thing. I'm like I'm right here guys <laughs> like I'm sitting right next to you but they didn't know and and it's uh, I think that's really telling and it's it's unfortunate that people can get so carried away with thinking that they're in a safe echo chamber and everybody thinks like them which is a reminder to all of us that we need to be mindful of our conversation our speech whenever we're you know opining on things of controversy that we do you know humble ourselves to say well maybe maybe i don't have the market cornered on this on this idea but anyway um i want to get into some of the the stuff that you've experienced um but i don't want to go too far without really acknowledging arms corps so arms corps has been a part of our podcast and our organization for a very long time now with some pretty substantial sponsorship of what we do Talk a little bit about that company in particular, your relationship to them, how it's helped you. Because I think I heard you say earlier that they, they really helped make you the shooter that you are. Um, what does that mean? And what does that company do? And how are they unique from, from anybody else? I think they deserve the spotlight for a little while here. So when uh, my introduction to the family was uh, actually uh, right person, right place, right time. Um, and... It, I just got I just got put in a very lucky situation. I uh, don't want to discuss it too in depth because of obvious reasons. But uh, uh, I mean, essentially, with, with my introduction to them, um, and then when the marketing director found out my name was John McLean, she found out that I was half Asian uh, as a Filipino-owned company. Um, you know, she, like to her, it was like marketing marketing dream come true. Essentially, we I sat down and had a meeting with them. And at the time, I was actually what's, what's classified as a C-class shooter in USPSA. So it's kind of broken down. Like if you if you shoot these these certain stages that USPSA have approval uh, nationwide for everyone to shoot, they're set up the same, they're same distance from, from the shooter to the targets, from the targets to each other and distance. I mean, it's you have to have like measuring tape and stuff to make it a, a legit stage. Everyone will shoot those stages and based on how you score along their database, they kind of rank you in the country of where you are. So at the time I was a C-class shooter, which I think is like 60 to 70 percentile. So not very good at all. I mean, weekend warrior, right? And uh, when when I had my meeting with them, they basically, you know, they sat me down. They said, hey, could you beat J.J. Rickazin? I was like, no, I'm not going to sit here and lie, you know, and, and even make it sound like, oh, yeah, yes, totally. I, I, can. I could have a chance, you know. Um, I was very honest. I was very forthcoming saying, like, look, I can't. But it's not because I, I don't think I have the ability. It's not because I don't have the drive. It's because I don't have the support and the means to really train and practice the way I want to. Um, you know, I was I was in a, a, a marriage uh, that was rough and, um, you know, obviously going through a, a rough patch. And since then, we got, got divorced and all that kind of stuff. But at the time, it was something that uh, or actually it was it was before it was after my divorce, actually. So um, but they they just I, I told them, like, you know, if I could have some ammo, like I don't have money, I'm, I'm paying child support. I'm trying to make, you know, pay rent and power and food and all that kind of stuff for me and my kid um, a lot of top ramen in my in my cupboards and stuff like that to make ends meet and uh, I just I just don't have extra cash to to send bullets down range obviously I can dry fire and stuff but in reality like to get to certain levels dry fire can only take you so far you do have to have live fire experience to learn recoil impulse site management you know stuff like that um, 
so we kind of started as like a developmental program. They, they gave me a chance. They said, okay, you know what? We're going to, we're going to see if you can back up what you say or not. So, um, I actually was brought on initially as a three gunner, uh, cause they didn't really have anyone that was shooting three gun at the time. So, um, I, I had an opportunity to, to get a thousand rounds a month. Um, they, they gave me like an initial, like two or 3000 rounds of, of nine millimeter and two, two, three to get started. And then from there, it was kind of like a thousand rounds a month, um, as I needed. So one month I'd get a case of nine and the next month I'd do a case of two, two, three. And then I would just keep kind of keep staggering those. So I always had a, a constant, you know, base, base bed of ammunition to train and practice with from there. And I think I took it more seriously than probably they did, but I started sending them every, like weekly updates of, Hey, here's, here's the results from the local match that I shot. You know, last, last two or three weeks, I was consistently in the 20 to 15 foot place. And now I'm, I'm consistently in the 15th to 13th place. So I was showing them my progression. I would, I would make videos, I'd post them and send them the links of me training and practicing and what I was working on and stuff like that. And, and a couple months into that developmental program, um, I immediately started seeing results. I went from a C class shooter to a B class shooter, like, within a span of maybe three months. And then from B class, I like almost barely stepped a foot into A class and made it to master within, uh, I'd say probably six to eight months of being on team arms Corps. And at that point, uh, Martin Twasson, the CEO of, of arms Corps, um, and very good friend, uh, you know, he's, he's a great guy and he, he treats his staff like family. And so I get treated like family whenever I'm in Vegas. And, and when I was living there, I still got treated like family, but, um, he basically saw what I was doing and said, you know what, this, this guy looks pretty good um, shooting in general. Let's just sponsor him for everything. So now it went from only shooting three gun and that being my primary set to like, okay, so now I've opened up USPSA, IDPA, IPSC and three gun. So I was, I was able to, to do everything. That was also around the time that uh, I, I stopped using my STI infinity hybrid millennium custom gun that I had. And I started my partnership with the company as a whole by shooting Rock Islands exclusively. And since then, you know, one of the things I've tried to, to make obvious in my shooting and, and my skill set and all the competitions I go to is the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm shooting guns that, yes, they are tuned. They, they have, a, they've had a gunsmith go through, do a trigger job, chop, you know, swap out sights, um, aftermarket parts inside and whatnot. But essentially, like when you pick up my competition pistols, you can shake them and hear the slide to frame rattle a little bit because it's it's a workman pistol. It's I've worked it hard. Um, it's not this like custom built strictly for me. I baby it kind of pistol. Like it, this is a gun that you can purchase from a store, send to a gunsmith to have work done and be competitive with. And it didn't cost you three or four thousand dollars to do it. It only cost you you know eight nine a thousand dollars or something like that. Um, and then the ammo that I shoot, I, I only shoot factory loaded ammunition. I don't, I don't have them load me custom ammunition or anything like that. So, uh, IDPA was fun. I shot my first IDPA match shooting 45 ACP hardball ammunition. And I found out its power factor was 193 at the match. So that was fun. Uh, my hands got beat up at that match, but, um, you know, other than that, there's been several times where I've gone to matches that, you know, either ammo was shipped, but it was shipped too early. And like after a couple of days, the, the hotel sent it back. And that was when I landed and I was like, oh, you, I, you should have a package for me. Oh, we just sent that back. We, we weren't sure if you were coming or not. I was like, OK, cool. And I've gone to, you know, Sportsman's Warehouse or, or whatever box store was available and just went, hey, I need 400 rounds of, you know, 124 grain, nine millimeter arms core. And it's the same stuff that I shoot anyway. So it's not like it's. Oh, it's messing my mentally like, no, I've, I wanted to prove that 
with a budget gun that is, you know, worked over to your liking and regular ammunition you can buy off the store off the store shelves you can be competitive it is not about the gear like i got i got sucked into the gearhead mentality so early on you know you start with a glock like you've got to put an aftermarket trigger and aftermarket sights and a a big old brass magwell and a tungsten guide rod all this stuff to try and make it competitive and then you find out like well geez i'm still not wishing that winning nationals what the hell maybe i can buy my way to the top it must be i need a faster holster or i need i need quicker mag pouches like no there's Nels Jonasson, great example of a shooter that uh, kind of helped me break that mentality, man. He used to he used to whoop up on people using a regular blade tech outside the waistband, full, you know, full hip riding holster and just regular blade tech pouches. And he's smashing guys and limited with with the, the ghost speed holsters and, you know, all these crazy rigs. And it's like, oh, oh, I can't buy a national title. I actually have to try. The Dodgers <laughs> have tried that for several years. Uh, the Yankees have yeah. tried it. That it, um, no, I'm, Vegas Golden Knights are trying it right now yeah. and finding out it doesn't work. But I'm uh, no. I'm smiling for a few reasons. One is that uh, I am I am the I am you. Like I'm the opposite of those gun gear guys, and I'm new to the culture. Uh, I've explained this before, but for you, it's uh, I've I've owned guns my whole life, but I was never into it till I met Mike and and Rob and got integrated and and I'm I, I was intimidated. Like it's it's intimidating. Um, I went to my first um, indoor pistol league uh, thing. You can just drop in, pay your 25 bucks or whatever, and shoot with the rest of the people there um, two years ago. So I'd only been in and around for like a year. And I was like, oh, I'm going to try this out. And I was terrible. I was running into barricades and like it was just like it was bad. Um, but hearing that really validates what what I believe, which is like I think I can – I've played sports my whole life, but I, I think it can make you can make mediocre equipment work if you work really hard at it, and um, and technology will take you you know a few steps up, but ultimately it's about your work ethic, you know, and your concentration, your diligence, and and so now you've given me hope to like keep going back because I haven't been in a really long time, mostly because I I've been busy, but also there's there's that nagging doubt of like I don't want to just go there to be the dude that you know doesn't have all the cool stuff and sucks. And, and I, I'm, I'm not learning, you know, so n- now hearing that it makes me a little more confident to say, I don't, I don't need to trick out my, my gun or my holster or my ammo to be, uh, to, to make it fun. Right. And that's, I'm not looking to win titles. I'm just looking to ha- be competent and have fun and improve. So that that's useful. But the other thing I was smiling about was Mike and I have a, <laughs> a different ammo disappearing story from a hotel. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, see, I, and hold on, Jake, I thought, but the funniest thing is this has happened a couple of times with the arms corps. Like one time they. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. No, 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 so, this is so good. Tell the story. Yeah. It's really good. No, but so, you know, Jake and I go to Kevin Dixie's training learn event and, um, arms corps sends a box of ammo for us, just all different calibers, everything like that. So we're set to go and, uh, we get there and I see that it's been delivered. So I go down to the front desk and I'm telling them, Hey, um, you know, where's this ammo, you know, we, where's this package. Right. And the guy's like, Oh, there's nothing here for you. I'm like, well, who's this person who signed for it? Oh, he's the owner of the hotel. And, uh, turns out like they stole our ammo <laughs> and there was a bigger, uh, a, a bigger story there. Like the hotel had been known to be, they rent out rooms for a meth ring. You know, I mean, it was just horrible. Yeah, they may they may or may not have had a secret handshake with one of the uh, the, the gun dealers in town, and I mean it's like 
Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up having to go buy arms car ammo again from a shop. <laughs> but I remember because I was, a, you know, every time this has happened, it's in the second time it's happened with uh, where the, the ammo didn't get to where it was supposed to get to in time, not where it was got, it got there early. And I ended up going to like a sportsman's warehouse and buying a bunch of arms car ammo. And I remember sending uh, Chloe's one of the employees there uh, a picture going, you got me. Like, like that was their secret way of making you go buy their ammo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it works. It's 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 good ammo. It's uh, it's awesome very ammo. cost effective. Um, I mean, I I think in my experience or my history with the company, I've, I believe I've shot probably close to maybe three to four hundred thousand rounds of arms wow. core ammunition, both both U.S. made and Philippine made. Um, I think where where the ammo was at fault, I have had maybe four rounds not go off wow um like where i, I re-put it in my gun and, and tried to shoot it and it just didn't go off every other time i've had an issue like I, i've either put it back in and it worked or it was something like the when i got into three gun like i got into pistol shooting and i learned a lot and then i got into three gun and i was a newborn again like now i got to mm-hmm. figure out how an ar works now i got to figure out how to how a shotgun works and all that kind of stuff right and i never realized that in an AR, you should actually take your bolt apart and like clean your firing pin channel and stuff because carbon and oil. And I literally stuff will build just learned that last week. I literally just learned that last week. I was having like light strikes and I emailed the company and they're like, oh, you got to clean it. And I was like, I did clean it. And they're like, no, really clean it. And here's a video. And I was like, okay, cool. So I, you know, I run the, some fluid through there and all this crap comes pouring. I was like, oh yeah, that, that would, that would interfere. Yeah. <laughs> I found out there were, there was so much carbon buildup that it was slowing the firing pin. It was creating enough drag to slow the firing pin to cause light primer strikes. Yeah, and once I, once I cleaned it out, the three rounds that I had not go off before I figured it out, Bang by bang. It was like, oh, okay, cool. It's not my rifle. <laughs> it's not my ammo. It was it was me. I, I wanna um, I wanna go back to something earlier. So you uh you went through and rattled off a bunch of acronyms that um people like me don't know and, and our listener audience is, is pretty pretty diverse. And I do know we have some gun curious people, uh healthcare professionals and whatnot. Can you uh like s- slow down and spread out those, those acronyms and explain what those, uh, groups are. I assume they're, they're, um, they're like associations through which you compete, right? Is that, yeah. What okay. okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the best, um, and most cost-effective organizations to join, um, cause it requires kind of the minimalist amount of equipment, um, and their courses of fire are fairly simple while the rules may be a little bit more, wonky as I call it, but um, that's going to be IDPA. And that's the International Defensive Pistol Association. So their mindset is more based on, you know, if you were concealed carrying and shooting scenarios and, and, you know, uh, it, uh, engaging targets in tactical order, as they call it, you know, giving every target one shot before giving your second and stuff like that. So their rule set is very much, it's, it's kind of set against the defensive side but it's still a game then that's what i want to make very very clear like if you are a good idpa shooter um congratulations you're good at shooting the idpa game that does not make you the the chris costa of the world or these guys that have been downrange and maybe like no you're still playing a game okay but it is one of the best uh cost effective ways to do it because a lot of times i think like you know if you start in their production division as they would uh, i don't even know what the hell they call it because they've got their own acronyms and i don't shoot idpa all that often but um, their kind of production version, um, you know, you're required to shoot a stock firearm um, with very minimal um, upgrades and stuff like that. And 
like three magazines, one to start in the gun and then two on your belt. And that's really kind of how it goes. And they, and their, their stages are not huge either. They're anywhere from six round to 12 round. I think like the largest they can have is like a 16 round course of fire because of the limitations of how many mags they allow you to put on your body. Um, so it doesn't require a lot of equipment to get started. That's cool. From and the there, reason I'm asking, by the way, John, is because if people are interested in getting involved, like I was at one time, and basically this is me talking on behalf of other people, um, part of the intimidation is not just the equipment, it's the cost, right? It's like, man, ammo's not cheap, guns aren't cheap. But if I'm hearing, well, I can use it, I can use the gun I already have with the mags I already have, um, maybe I'll take a dabble in something like a, an indoor pistol league in my local town, you know? And IDPA, actually, they, they even have some matches at the national level, but you can do it at the local level, too. I'm sure you could find them um, where they, they call them bug guns. So it's the backup gun nationals. Hmm. So the super compact guns and stuff like they they have a whole division set aside for, for that, too. Cool. So, um, yeah, so IDPA is probably one of the most cost effective ways to get into it from there. Um, the, the next organization or organizations, and I kind of lump these two together because one is uh, IPSC. The International Practical Shooting Confederation, and then USPSA, which is United States Practical Shooting Association. Um, the reason I kind of lump those two together is because, like, one is just pretty much the same rule set, but at an international level. And then USPSA um, is is another organization. Some of the rules are different, but for the most part, like, if you're a USPSA shooter, you probably shoot IPSC as well, as we call it. And um, they're a little bit more of the run and gun type. They're they're not very uh, serious about engaging targets in certain orders, or like they're very much a, a freestyle type of of match setup where you just you walk the stage, you come up with a stage plan that works good for you, and then when it's your time to come to the line and the buzzer goes off, you execute your plan to the best of your ability, and then you know you go down range and score. Um, those stages can be larger they allow up to i think 32 round courses of fire and at some outlaw matches that you can go to you know we used to have one in vegas called the ho 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 hose fest and the halloween hose fest and all these where we would have like 60 round stages so it was just wow. like and, and everything was super close so the idea was you'd shoot 60 rounds in like 28 seconds just wow. blazing through this course of fire kind of thing and it was really fun um you know back when ammo was readily available and affordable and you didn't mind sending 60 rounds down range per stage. But, uh, so that one could be a little bit more cost. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe a little bit heavier in the cost to, to get into. Um, just because like now, instead of only three mags, you might need six or seven if you want to stay in the production division, cause you want to be able to carry more ammunition for you. Um, you know, backup magazines in case things go terribly wrong, misses on steel and stuff. But so there's probably a little bit more gear involved, but, uh, you know, then again, at the same time, it's like, what, what is six Glock mags really cost you? Like maybe, maybe 80 to a hundred dollars, something like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it kind of just depends on, on how, how heavy you want to get into it. Uh, from there, you've also got, um, uh, Steel Challenge is another form of USPSA shooting that's that's kind of under their umbrella. And that's probably, I would say, if you wanted to shoot, do like the run and gun type stuff, IDPA. If you want to get really good at marksmanship and speed of your draw and transitions and stuff like that, Steel Challenge is an excellent way to go. And Steel Challenge is probably the easiest one as far as following the rules go. The stages are preset. They've been preset for years and years and years. So you can set them up at your own local range if you've got the ability to set up steel targets and stuff. And it's literally most majority of the stages, you stand in a box, 
your wrist above shoulders, your gun loaded on the signal, draw, shoot four plates, and then shoot the fifth one, which is considered the stop plate. If you miss a plate, it's a three second penalty. Otherwise, you shoot five times, they take your slowest time, they throw it away, they add those four, the fastest four times, that's your score for that stage, move on. And it's a great way to practice repetitions if you draw, it's a great way to, to practice uh, you know, transitions and, and moving your gun, getting your eyes moving before the gun and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's just, it's just a really fun sport to get into um, from a beginner's perspective. They also allow rim fire, so you can shoot 22 long rifle pistol and 22 long rifle rifles. Um, which and, is cheaper I, for the like, listening audience if you don't know it's cheaper it's great for juniors yep like if, if you can build a really light pcc or, or or you know a 22 long rifle that that functions man you can you can go out there and teach your kids some very very serious gun handling skills and and of course you're in this competition setting so it's all about safety like if there's anything about those matches don't get me wrong we want everyone to have fun most importantly we want everyone to return home with the same number of holes they showed up at the range with so like like a lot of people i think the biggest stigma about getting into competition shooting is the worst thing you could do is go on youtube and search it up because all you're gonna all you're gonna see is rob latham eric Grafell, jj ricasa you know all these top level shooters and their videos and you're gonna go i well i can't do that i'm not going out there and making myself look like an idiot but you're talking about the 10 percent of the nation that can shoot like that 80 percent of the nation are the weekend warriors and then another 10% are the brand new shooters. And, um, you know, it, I think, yeah, if, if you go on YouTube and you search USPSA, you're going to be intimidated because you think I can't do that. What you have to realize is that all of us thought we couldn't do that to begin with. But in reality, the only way to, to get into it is to just go like throw yourself in there. You know, I tell a story when I was younger about um, the first time I ever went cliff diving at Lake Mead in Vegas before it was, you know, hundreds of feet Empty. and drought and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. Pulling up Jimmy uh, when it, and, when uh, it was When it was safe to do so. And I remember we, we got there, we were at the highest cliff. It was like a 60 foot cliff. And all my friends are standing at the edge, looking over the, the edge, staring at the water. And they're just like, oh my gosh, wait, this is so high. Like, oh, like they're all scared to do it. I never once stepped to the edge and looked at it. Instead, I got a running start. I just jumped because I was like, the decision's only going to take a second. You know, I have to deal with the consequences afterwards, but there's water down there. So I just took a jump and was like, okay, wow. Yep. This is a long ways down. When am I going to hit the water? You know, but I, I made it to where I didn't give myself the opportunity to, to psych myself out of it. And same thing with competition shooting. Like I, I, I tried to train and practice and get ready for it. But in reality, you just got to go there. Most people will feel like people are watching me. They're, they're judging me. What if I look like an idiot? Everyone there is only looking for you to be safe and have fun. That's it. Like they will give you tips, pointers. They'll let you borrow gear if you need to. Like it's a very friendly environment. You meet a lot of amazing people. It's one of the few sports I know of where I could have something break on my gun and then the people that are competing directly with me will come over and say, Dude, what do you need? Like your thumb safety broke. Do you need an extra one? Cause I've got one in my bag. Like my competitors, are giving me their gear to try and fix and resolve my issue to get back in the fight. Like, you know, I, I think that's pretty cool about our, our organization. So that's that's something to also take into consideration. Like, don't go there with fear of of sucking or or being embarrassed or something. Like, we were all brand new shooters at once. Every single JJ Ricasa went to his very first match ever at one time in his life. You know, like we all right. have to learn. Um, 
I analogize that so. to the homebrew community. I've, I've been brewing beer for a really long time and, and it's, I, I had the same intimidation, you know, all these ingredients, all these, it's like, um, it's not that like everybody will help you along the way. Nothing's proprietary. You know, it's, 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 <laughs> I've, I had the same experience that, at that, that pistol league and, um, it was helpful and friendly and fun. And, um, it, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you're sharing that because hopefully we get more people into this because it can be quite effective at building character, discipline, focus, concentration, especially for the youth. And you, you have a story about how uh, shooting helped get you through a tough time. And, you know, this is a guns and mental health podcast. We might as well talk about that. So, um, share that story. Yeah. So, so as I discussed, you know, uh, me, me getting picked up by rock on an arms Corps was actually after my, my divorce that I went through. And, uh, you know, I, I'd been with this girl. Um, I mean, I, I, First time I saw her in third grade, I fell in love with her, right? <laughs> and we ended up uh, reconnecting somewhere in high school, like my junior, uh, sophomore, junior year. Um, dated for four or five years, uh, ended up having a baby together, got married. And then, you know, three years in, it just all came tumbling down, right? And and something like that, like I, I always explain a divorce is like a a surgery, a removal of a cancer kind of thing. Like, you know, there's, uh, there's obviously something very unhealthy in your relationship. So you have to remove it. But when you remove something that is so ingrained in your life, like every morning starts with that person and every night ends with that person. And, you know, like it's, it's a lot to take in you, you're, you're invested so much in time, money, energy, emotions, and all that kind of stuff. And then to all of a sudden have it removed and in such a violent way, of, of going through a divorce is mentally taxing. It's physically demand. You know, you can't sleep. You have no hunger. You you no desire to do anything. In my case, I started um, self. Uh, what's where I'm looking for? Medicating. Um, yeah, self medicating with Jameson. I, I got to a point where I would down a bottle of Jameson a night. Um, you know, uh, and during that, that time. And it was just tough. Like, I, like I said, I had no motivation. Um, didn't want to do anything. Everything that I drove through Vegas, I had memories of this place, memories of that place. Oh, I remember when we were in love and da, 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 and, and dealing with all these emotions and totally. stuff. And obviously it was a, a very low and dark time in my life, but you know, uh, and, and this is where we, we kind of talk about how this, this, you know, walk, talk America and stuff and how people will, will claim guns take lives or whatever. But the fact is one of the things that got me through that divorce was every week I knew that for a couple hours on that Saturday, I was going to get to go to the range and turn my brain off to everything I was dealing with because I was going to be around a group of guys that I had a good time with. I was going to be focusing on the stages, resetting targets, coming up with stage plans, executing them. And all. like it for me, that was like the one time of the week that I really worked towards because and I, and I just kept fighting to get to that day, because every time I left the range that time uh, throughout that time, I felt a little bit better about what I was doing because I, I had a, a ray of sunshine hit my face for a couple hours. And then, of course, I leave the range and, yeah, the dark clouds come rolling in, you know, by the end of the night. But like I, I had that 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 hope showed me like, look, you you're still relevant. You are your own individual person. I think that was the biggest thing, too, for me was to figure out that um, going through that divorce was it, it's a rediscovery of yourself. You need to figure out without 
other entity in my life, who is John McClain? What is it that I like to do? What are the things that I don't like? What are the things, you know, and, and you kind of have to process and develop and no one likes looking in, inside. Like we all know our own shortcomings. We just sometimes don't want to admit or face them or anything like that. So we just try and bury them or hide them or anything like that. But the fact is when you're going through something as traumatic as that, it forced me to, well, I took it upon myself to face my demons. Other people may delay the inevitable or, you know, push them aside and try and just bury them like I discussed, but I chose to face them. And so that was a time of me rediscovering something like, okay, shooting is something I love. It is like a mandatory vacation for me. So that's something I'm going to continue to do. And that's very important in my life. What else is important? Obviously my daughter was very important at the time too. Well, she still is not too, but you know, so that was another thing that I, I focused on. I've got to make sure there's food on the table. I got to make sure, you know, if she won't go to the movies or something like that, like I've got the ability to entertain her and, and make her childhood as, as good as it can be. Um, you know, so you really get to rediscover who you are. And and as I said, the other thing is that you really rediscover the things that are important to you, both positively and negatively. So I walked away from that relationship knowing like there were certain things about my next relationship that I absolutely would not tolerate. Like they were things that I tried to tolerate, but it was one of the things that just kept building and building in the relationship until it imploded. So you kind of rediscover again the things that are valuable and important to you um but for me like i said i mean shooting was one of the things that really helped me get my mind off of where i was and and going through to this place of look there's hope like you just spent four hours on the gun range with a bunch of great people um you laughed you giggled you joked this this is possible now we just got to figure out how do we take that that john in that moment and expand them to the week, you know, and then the rest of the month and then the rest of the year kind of thing. So for me, it, firearms has never been like something that I've looked at as, as my way out of life. It was a way for me to get back into living. So that's my personal story about how firearms actually saved my life and, and competition shooting saved my life in, in, in getting through that uphill battle. It's a lead therapy is a real, it's real. You know what I mean? I, I have friends that that literally that's their 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 escape. I mean, like they they will flat out say like, "I'm not doing so well. I need to get out there and go on to BLM land and shoot." Mm-hmm. You know, so I totally get that. And one thing I'd like to say too, because I I went through a pretty nasty divorce, um, and and it really hits home when you're talking about it because it brings back all the memories that I have, uh, especially when you have kids. Right, like kids make divorce way more complicated than the regular divorces and divorce is never good because like, even if you want out and you've, you're tired and you're tapped out and you're checked out, it's, it's still bad. No one wakes up and says, we're going to have a good divorce. Like that doesn't happen. Right. Um, but also too, it gives you an opportunity to, the second marriage, you know, it's been a lot better than the first because I was able like, you know, what you're saying is you kind of like look inside yourself. So there's probably a lot of things that, you know, I'm not, everybody has, there's, there's three sides of the story, right? There's, there's her side, your side, and then the truth is somewhere in the middle. But, you know, uh, for me, it was like, okay, this time around, I'm going to make these behavior, you know, just tweaks to my behavior. I'm not going to respond a certain way that I used to respond, you know? So I was able to, to really become a better husband the second time around just because I didn't, you know, I knew, Hey, that probably should have handled it that way. You know, my intentions weren't bad. I didn't want us to end a divorce, but like things I didn't understand. So 
um, you know, the, the second chance thing, I, I think there's a great opportunity uh, after a divorce to become a better husband or a better wife the next time. Yeah. Did yeah, you get, ab- absolutely. Did either of you guys get professional counseling or psychotherapy through your divorce process? It was never offered to me. Um, I, at, at the time of the divorce, I was, um, I was seeing my own counselor and my ex-wife was seeing her own counselor. And then once a month we would meet with our counselors in a room together and have a group session kind of, uh, to deal with, with what was going on. So I did have, and that was ran through the church I was going through at the time. Um, so I, I did have some help and I had, I knew I had the avenue that I could take if I chose to do it. Um, I just... I, I think I did a couple sessions, but I pretty much kind of knew what I knew. It was just a matter of like, I, you know, I, I had my therapist telling me the same thing all my buddies were telling me at work and, and at, you know, but like, it doesn't matter because at the end of the night, they're not, they're not laying in bed with you, tapping you on the shoulder to be like, you're good, bro. You're going to, you're going to be solid. You know, it's like, if they were, that'd be a little weird, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, obviously it helps to have a good solid foundation of support for sure. But at the end of it, like, you're your own house and you need to, you need to learn how to stand on your own kind of thing. And, uh, so I did, I did have the ability to talk to someone when I needed to. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't something that I think the, the state or anything like that almost like implied saying like, Hey, you know, you're going through this process. We would suggest, like, I don't think the state ever really cared yeah. whether or not I was getting it. I had, state. Your head. I had the state. You had the state. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, the divorce was messy and it, it, you know, it wasn't a, it was one of those things where they, they thought it would be, you know, beneficial for the whole family to go seek therapy. And, um, and we did, and that's a whole podcast, Jake, probably where, you know, I open up and talk about that whole experience, but it, it, it actually might, did help. It might be me. worth, worth having someday, but yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it I felt good about it and I treated therapy as an opportunity to be completely honest um, about myself in the situation. So it was nice to go into a situation and, you know, be able to talk about when I played the bad guy in my head. Cause I knew like there's some things in my marriage that I was wrong, right? Like I, it's not the way you handle it. Like say someone cheats on you and then you retaliate by cheating on them. Right. Like, you know, yeah. as you're older, you're like, God, I should have just left. You know, right. um, you know, it's like this behavior that you see. So I went in, um, it really felt like it gave me a clean slate, you know, like almost like a confession, right? Like in Catholicism, it's like, I came in there and talked and, uh, you know, it was, it was really interesting, but we did personality tests. I mean, it was, uh, it was a really interesting experience, but right. I would recommend, you know, having what you, what you just said, I would recommend that to anybody. Yeah. I, I, I asked that somewhat selfishly because, um, I've seen this trend in our field where the the pendulum has swung from nobody do therapy because it's weird and whatnot to uh, everybody has a mental illness and we're all traumatized in our own way. So it's created this uh, overwhelming demand on our field, which is under-resourced and understaffed as it is. And I've been lately in the last several months, maybe a year, year and a half, I've been saying pretty loudly, stay out of my office. Take, take resources, take the videos, stay out of my office if you can. Come in if you really need it um, because I do believe that people can in their own communities and in their own homes, but again, provide you have the resources and the, and the network around you to push through and, and solve your own stuff and reconnect uh, because you know my profession's only been around for 100, 
100 and something years. Uh, and humanity has been around for 40,000 in its current form. So I, I'm trying to not invite everybody into the clinic because uh, I don't think most of us need that level of, of uh, professional intervention. But what I'm glad you guys did is you highlighted both ends of that where it's like, you know, John's testimony is I had some counseling. I had some friends. I sort of knew it. What I needed to do is apply it. And, and I love that you said, yeah, they're not coming home with me, you know, laying on my bed, patting me on the head saying it's going to be okay. Uh, not just because it'd be weird and a boundary violation, but because <laughs> it's not possible. You know, I'm, I do an hour a week with somebody. They're somewhere else the other 167 hours of the week. So they have to be able to take what, what we teach in the sessions and apply it and make it work and then practice it. Because if, especially if you've had a longstanding pattern of behavior that's not desirable, uh, you didn't get there overnight. It's going to take some time to undo that stuff and, and change and go a different direction. Uh, you know, to, to Mike's statement where he's like, yeah, I, I did all this stuff and I had all this information and I, I allowed myself, and it's my words, not yours, but you allowed yourself to be vulnerable enough to face the fear of letting go of that which you thought you knew, which was your previous set of reactions and, and responses, to entertain something new. And I think that fear is, is something that a lot of people face, but dudes especially, and then we'll go with dudes and other people, women in firearms, because now there's another pendulum swinging. It's not just one way, you know, avoid psychotherapy to everybody go get psychotherapy because it's popular. There's a third pendulum that says, uh, be careful of going and getting any medical care because the practitioners may red flag you or, you know, otherwise restrict your access to those healthy things that people in my profession should be prescribing. If you have a good hobby that you love, I would say, go play baseball more. You know, this is how you deal with it. Go work out, go, go take the dog for a walk, take hikes. Um, all of this stuff actually centers on outdoors for the most part, because nature is very, very healing. But, um, what, wh where, where do we get off saying, uh, you're a danger because you're depressed. I don't think you should be around your guns. You're like, well, actually, <laughs> that's what's saving me right now. Um, and I think it's really disingenuous for our profession to say we need to get people away from their guns uh, when they're stressed. It's like, well, no, you need to get people away from their guns when there's an acute presence of threat of harm. And that's not at all what either of you guys went through. And that's not at all what the the vast majority of people go through. So I would actually go the inverse, the opposite direction, prescribe that, say, I think you need to go shooting more. And, and I think that the, the run-of-the-mill practitioner, they're going to have their hair stand on end because they just don't know. Most of us, like I let mm -hmm. off by saying, most of us just don't understand guns. Um, EMS, you know, uh, frontline doctors, certainly police and military, a lot of firefighters are into firearms, but the mental health profession isn't. So we just, we just don't know what we're talking about when we say, oh, I'm getting nervous because you say that you're, you're highly anxious or you have PTSD and, and you like shooting. Uh, that's, that's a me issue. That's not a you issue. And I need to mm -hmm. examine that and be more humble and curious and ask, how does this benefit you? So if you're listening um, and you're a firearms owner, seek out a clinician who's competent in that culture that's going to encourage the healthy things in your life, in, including shooting. Um, and if you're a practitioner, make yourself more aware of the, the therapeutic benefits of this kind of thing because we don't want to be chasing people away from therapy because that's what ultimately results in more destruction in lives, not less. So um, that's my commercial. That's my soapbox. Thank you for testifying, you too. <laughs> um, you said exactly what I hoped you would say. I want to pause for a moment and recognize our platinum sponsors. 
you all know that if you've been listening for any time that Arms Corps has been a long supporter of what we do, but they just got joined in the Platinum Realm by Ruger. And I personally could not be prouder because I shoot a lot of Ruger guns. And I'm very excited that they're on board, that they're backing what we do, that they've substantially contributed to our efforts financially, and they're going to take it even further by putting packaging in their boxes, just like Arms Corps has done. So if you are listening to this and you are affiliated with the firearms industry in some form or fashion, and you would like to sponsor us at any level, it doesn't have to be platinum, but we certainly would appreciate that, please reach out to us, admin. A-D-M-I-N, admin at WTTA.org is the way to do that. And we will make sure to connect with you and see if we can hammer out an agreement. Thanks to our sponsors, Arms Corps and Ruger. We love you guys. Keep up the good work. And without further delay, back to the show. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, obviously everyone is different. And that's what we're having such a hard time discussing uh, openly nowadays is, is the fact that... Um, there's there is not a perfect box that everyone can fit into no and everyone mean. should yeah e- even people like you know you could be you could have the love of your life i bet there's at least one thing that you all can't agree on even though they're your perfect soulmate everything about your relationship's great there's got to be one someone likes it set to 76 while the other person likes it set to 68 or someone wants a fan on and the other person freezes to death there's something right so there's there's always got to be a little bit of give and take in in your relationships with friends family coworkers, you know even within yourself sometimes but you know you got to learn how to how to okay i don't agree with that but i'm not going to let one argument destroy this history that i have you know there's a lot of uh nurse friends that i i ran calls with and, and dropped patients off to and stuff like that in the ems world um that when political things happen and they started voicing their opinions on the social media platforms, I absolutely did not agree with it. But I also didn't ever engage them about it because when it comes down to it, like I could sit there and argue with them all day long, but they have their beliefs. They believe it for whatever reason they do. I could, if they want to have a debate with me, like, so if I posted something and they start commenting on mine and they engage me, I'm open to an open debate as long as both parties can walk away saying, okay, I still respect you. You still respect me. We might not respect our opinions about this particular situation, but I mean, you know, some of these nurses I've, I've worked with for eight years, I'm not going to let one argument about like, well, I think guns are, are stupid. It's like, cool. I think guns are awesome. And they helped me with a lot of stuff and it's, it's my job now. It's my career. It helps pay my bills. Um, I've, I've met a lot of awesome, great people, but if you haven't had a good experience with it, then you know, yeah, I'm not forcing you to buy a gun. Meet them where they are. You know, that's that's what uh, Christian Conti, one of my friends and mentors, talks about. Is you know, it's meet meet people where they are, um, not where you want them to be. Certainly not where mm-hmm. they used to be. That's not useful. Um, and and go from there. And like you said, at the end of the day, if you have mutual respect for one another, you can you can work productively together without trying to change each other's minds. That's not that's not really what it's about. And, and you find I, common ground too. Like if, if you find out that person doesn't like guns, the, the answer is very simple. If you want to hang out with them, don't talk don't about talk guns. about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not be zealots. Yeah. Um, so speaking of EMS, when you were in that field, so Eddie Davenport is one of our board members. He's a former EMS guy. Um, and he's a com- competitive shooter has won some national titles. He's a, a clinical social work associate now, which is like the, the supervised person. He's got a license, but he's supervised by somebody until he gets his hours. Um, 
he's told some pretty harrowing stories. And I, I know that you with your career have some. I'm wondering though, rather than specifics, but in broad form, how did that career affect you? Because I think I heard you say earlier that you, you alluded to something like I was ready to jump into, you know, competition shooting because I was burned out on the, on the career. Describe that and then also describe some of the, the strategies that people in that career implement in order to stay healthy. Well, you know, uh, the, the company that I worked for was American Medical Response. And they actually, when, when I was working there, um, they did have, uh, I can't remember what they were called. Um, they almost had like a, uh, a response team like that were employees. Support. Like yeah, support, yeah, they were yeah. employees, but they were they were um, available on this. I, I can't remember the, the term that they used for to save my life right now. Uh, but basically, what would happen is like say say your unit got dispatched to a call, and based on the notes, it seemed like it was going to be a pretty difficult call. You know, uh, child drowning, uh, possible you know death at a vehicular accident or something like that. Um, basically, after your call was done, and you would you would let your dispatchers know that, okay, I'm at destination, I've made it to the hospital, we're offloading our patients and stuff. Um, basically, after like a 30, 45 minute time window, um, these people would be notified and they would start to call you. And it was a matter of like, hey, tell me what you need. Do you, do you wanna take an hour off? Do you need to take the rest of the day off? Do you, you, know, do you wanna come in and chat, chat, talk about it or anything like that? So we had this peer support group of people that would, would call and try and get involved. Um, and several times I took it and other times it was, no, I'm fine. It's, you know, we've, we've dealt with, I've, I've chatted with my partner and that's another thing too, that I think it can really help is if you have a good solid partner that you really learn how to jive with and, and get along well with that can make the difference of the longevity of longevity of your career as well. I've had, I've had multiple great partners that whether or not they moved on to the fire department or actually one of them is still there working in Vegas at AMR and I, and I try to call him and text him every now and then make sure we're, we're still in contact and stuff. But um, so they did have that purpose there. And then also if you, they even had like, like uh, a certain chiropractor that was set up that you could go and visit to make sure your back and your shoulder, you know, any injuries or whatever were being taken care of. And then they also did have um, some medical professionals that were kind of like specialized to the employees. Like they were aware they, they had some sort of agreement with AMR being like, Hey, if anything, if anyone needs anything, we're going to send them to your office. Um, cool. So it, it would kind of help out on the financial side because they wouldn't charge us, you know, fully. We kind of get like a discounted rate and, and all that kind of stuff. So they, they did have those resources available for us in EMS. The, the problem and, you know, I think we've, we've probably even tapped on this a little bit is, well, who's going to take those those opportunities right. to use those resources? Because there's that stigma. I'm a dude. Therefore. I should be tough. I need to. I need to just suck it up. You know, don't be a little bitch. And, well, and you're the and responder too. Service. You're, you're right. expe you, the expectation people have of you is that you're the one to whom they turn. Like, where do you go when you have to turn to someone? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that that was one of the hard things about the career too. Is like, you know, I I couldn't run a call where there was a um, you know, a self-inflicted gunshot wound and there's body, you know, brain matter all over the place and stuff like that. Like, like. I saw things and people in the EMS world and, and first responders, I mean, we see things on a daily basis almost that no human being should be okay with just continuing their day after seeing. And right. yet there are those people that are, that are wired that way. You know, I got very good at being able to, to disconnect and distance myself from work and home 
but that comes at a price. And that price is that when you're at work, whatever you see, hear, smell, feel, and all that kind of stuff, you pretty much have to discuss it with your peers because your family's not going to understand. Yeah, you're not it. taking it to the cocktail party and you're not taking it to the dinner table with your young children. Yeah. Yeah. You take the fun stories there. Sure. But the dark, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong, I think sharing the fun stories is a part of the, a, a, therapeutic, a therapeutic experience in the EMS world because it, it kind of makes you laugh about the experience that it keeps you uh, kind of excited about still working in that mm-hmm. field because you know that you could get some funny calls, cool calls, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you also see some terrible things and then you go home and your kid comes, runs to you and says, how was your day, daddy? And you just got to say, oh, it was, it was fine. You know, it was, it was good. Daddy, daddy had a we hard day at work, people. but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can't just be like, oh my gosh, there was a little girl just like you and she drowned in a pool because her parents weren't paying attention. Like you can't have that conversation, yeah. but that's a call that you can run. So, um, you know, the, the burnout year, I think statistically in Vegas, the burnout year is somewhere around four years. After four years, most people are like, I'm done. I, I either need to get out or move on to, um, you know, like radiation tech or something like, like, I can't do this emergency thing anymore. I've got to do something a little bit longer longevity wise for my career and my mental health and, and, you know, physical tolls and stuff like that. Um, so the fact I made it eight years means I, I doubled the standard, which I, I don't know if that means I'm a mentally strong dude or I'm a really messed up dude. <laughs> but, how, how, uh, were you working in 2017 when route 91 went down? I was, um, I, I had the, insane timing of having turned in my resignation 10 days before that event took place how did you respond to that because i know there's a lot of people do with like survivor's guilt they could they call it there there is a level of guilt that i experienced but my my level of guilt is the fact that i was actually i was driving back from saint george utah after shooting a handgun nationals there and when i started getting text about it and the link sent to me about what was going on um, here I am 10 days out of the field. I've still got my uniform. I've still got my knowledge. I've still got my skill sets. Right. Um, but I just turned in my resignation, not to say that it was a, a, a sour separation between me and the company and, and my operations manager, uh, because like three months afterwards we were playing hockey together, but with it being so fresh, I was having this internal struggle of like, well, do I just go and say like, I, you know what, smash whatever shit we got. Um, give me a one day contract so I can sign it get on a rig and go help. And then the flip side was, well, you know what? On second thought, I just got done shooting day three of handgun nationals. I'm driving back from St. George. I've been awake for 16 hours now. Um, do I really want to put myself in a bad situation where I'm already tired and exhausted mentally going into a, a high stress traumatic situation? Um, would I really be helping or could I potentially hurt the situation kind of thing? So for me, I do have a little bit of guilt because I always wondered, you know, is there someone out there or someone not here today that I could have helped if I would have gone versus, you know, what I chose to do, which was the the act of not going. Um, I was dating a a PA at the time and she, uh, I basically had to wake her up and say, Hey, you get up and go to work. Like you're going to have a rough night tonight. Um, so she, and and she worked at one of the, the trauma centers there. So, um, but yeah, I was, I was 
and I hate to say I was lucky enough because, you know, obviously it was a terrible situation, but I was lucky enough that I, I had gotten out of EMS before that. But I mean, immediately after that took place, I can tell you that I was sending text messages to every person that I really know that was still working there saying like, how you doing, man? Like, if you need to talk, give me a call, let's grab a beer or grab lunch or whatever. You know, um, I wanted to be one of those people that they could reach out to because I, I could understand, even though I'm not in the field anymore and I'm not technically your coworker. I know what you're experiencing. So if you need to talk to someone that is not a family member, or t but you just need to vent and have someone that understands what's going on, I'm here. So, so in addition to that role that you played, which I'm sure helped a lot in the, in the healing and the alleviation of the guilt, um, how, like, did you have any techniques in particular or strategies you used to help you let go and find peace with not being there, not being present uh i mean it, like i said i mean there's there's still moments that i i look back to that moment and and just i mean i kind of wish that i did go and do it but mm. i'm also like in my heart i know that i wanted to go there and i wanted to do good but the logical side of me looking at the situation from the outside in and with even time to process also knows that even if I'd gone, uh, I, I mentally was not entirely yeah. prepared to, to go into a high stress situation. I wasn't well rested. It's not like I ate great that day. Like I think I had a protein bar in the middle of the day and then ate a bunch of junk, you know, at the award ceremony and stuff. So like, I, I wasn't properly fueled. Like I just yeah. looking at it, you know, that's, and that's kind of how I, how I based my, my after action report of, you know, how I handled the situation in a way was saying like, look, I mean, as much as you wanted to be there, it's a good thing. You probably didn't go just, you, you knew the coworkers that were working that night, you know, that the city was in good hands, you know, the patients were getting taken care of and all that kind of stuff. So, um, while they, they might've appreciated your hands being there, they didn't need them. Right. Um, and a lot, and a lot of people I know also that were off, did go into work anyway. Like they, as soon as they found out, they just threw their uniform in their car, drove to the station as fast as they could and said, Give, I mean, every rig that AMR, MedicWest, Community Ambulance, like they were all gone. So, um, so know, I yeah, mean, I mean, that's, that's, that makes sense. That's good. That's, uh, you, you work through it and you've, you've explained it, um, effectively and it sounds like you are at peace and you're always going to have those nagging doubts creep in, you know, there, there's always going to be that uh, just because it's a, it's a huge event that nobody prepares for. Um, and so, I mean, that's, that's good. That's all I was asking. And, and the reason I asked is not selfishly. It's like if the listening audience is dealing with something like that, where they were given an opportunity, but maybe it wasn't the best choice in the world. They chose something and they can leave it behind knowing that they made the decision with the best information they had at the time. And that's all we can do. You know, it's uh, later you get more information, but you, there's no, I should have, cause you, you literally couldn't have. So, um, that's, that's great. Great answer. I appreciate that. Thanks for, thanks for opening up. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure if anyone believes in, in, you know, multiverses and stuff, there is a universe where I did go <laughs> and that would be the universe where I'd be able to get my answer. But unfortunately we're living in this one right now and, uh, that's, that's the right. answer that's I got, right. but, um, you know, I, I mean, I do know there were, there were a lot of people that saw some terrible things that night. Um, they also did some amazing things, you know, they're in those situations, there's that, that quote, you know, in those situations, look to those that are running towards the problem, Run, look to those that are looking to help. And that's where you find hope in such a dark situation like that. And lucky for me, um, I knew a lot of the people that responded and, and, 
knowing that how good they were as far as you know we all have bad days There's, i'm not saying they were perfect but um I think every person, I, I, I don't think there's really a coworker out there that I, if I had to put, get put on a truck with them, I would like be like, Ooh, yeah. no, no, we're, I'm, I'm not going to end up in court because of you. You know, like everyone was competent. Everyone was, was solid with their skills. Um, so I knew, I knew that people were getting taken care of by, by some of the best in the city. I have a, qu- I have a question about you. So when you were, were working as an um, EMS, right. And mm-hmm. you were m- married to your first wife were you already working in that field when you married her or no so i actually my my world to ems got started as a lifeguard for uh, a casino down in vegas um i i and and you know my my daughter being born was actually the catalyst that led me to uh lifeguarding and ems because essentially when i found out i was having a baby um i decided that you know what there's there's a gap in my knowledge about first aid. Now that I'm having a kid, what do I do if, if they start choking? What do I do if they aren't breathing at night or, you know, they roll on their face and they suffocate, you know, like I, I need to have something. So I actually took, you know, I, I went and got my lifeguard certification. I started working as a lifeguard. I did that for about, I think two and a half years or so. Um, and in that time I made it from a lifeguard to a pool supervisor, uh, to an assistant pool or part-time supervisor and then a full-time supervisor at the pool um, where I, I discovered one day going to work as a lifeguard that um, I was, I stopped at a, a corner store to get some gas in my car and a car accident happened right at that intersection as I was fueling up. So I grabbed my, my fanny pack with all my first aid kit and stuff like that. And I ran out to the intersection and checked on the people. What I realized very quickly was there was still a very big gap in my medical knowledge. Yes, I understand CPR. Yes, I know basic first aid, but holy crap, I don't know if this person should be up and walking. I don't know if they have potential fractures, stress, you know, I don't know if mentally there's anything going on. Like, I don't know how to check if someone is concussed or not. Like, you know, so from that moment, I said, okay, you know what? I need to, to gain a little bit more knowledge about the medical field. And I signed up for my EMT basic course through the community college there. And that it was never meant to become my career. Like I went and did my basic course just to gain the knowledge so that I personally could have some more um, skills available if necessary for my daughter. But what I discovered was that throughout that, that course, um, you're required to do the classroom hours, you do the clinical hours and you do the lab hours. So the lab is where you get to to practice the skills on your mannequins and dummies and stuff. You know, how do you, how do you secure someone's spinal column so that they don't move their head for a potential fracture or anything like that? How do you, you know, do CPR? How do you open up an airway? How do you insert the, the NPAs or the, you know, the nasal airways and the, the oral ones and stuff. Right. And then for the clinicals, you had to work two shifts, two 12 hour shifts at a hospital ER. You had to do a labor and delivery rotation, which you either got to deliver a kid or you didn't. That just depended upon if there were any birthdays at that particular hospital that night. Um, you had to do one psych ward evaluation or rotation, and then you had two rides with the uh, county fire department on their rescue. And when I did the ride alongs with the fire department, that was when I was like, okay, this, this might be a pretty cool job, like not just as a skill set. 
So when I was done with my basic certification, I just immediately moved on to the next one, which at the time was called intermediate and now it's called advanced uh, EMT. So now I could start IVs, I could do some airway maneuvers, um, administer some medications. So it was just kind of the next stepping stone before a full-fledged paramedic. And once I got past my intermediate, I started applying. Um, I went, took the test. You have to do the fitness test and all that kind of stuff that AMR puts on. And then, you know, I, I think it took me about six months or so before I got picked up by AMR. And uh, and that was how that career started. But I mean, it was funny that it never was never my intention to go the route of EMS. It was all about it was a very selfish reason for me taking those classes was so I knew what to do. I wanted the knowledge. It just translated into, okay, this might be something that could be fun to do, could be a, a cool job to experience. And I get to gain the knowledge and then practice it. Um, so it started out as a selfish reason and it turned into a selfless job because no one ever called me because they were having a good day and <laughs> I never got the thank you notes afterwards you know but uh it, it, it was a great job um I got a lot of great stories a lot of good memories um it was and I mean uh I can't think there, there's been several times where I was off the clock where my knowledge did help me in certain situations um nothing necessarily life or death but there, there was like a, a moment, actually, when, when my uh, first daughter was very young, she was uh, eating a grape and ended up, I started seeing the arm wave of, you know, oh, shit, I can't breathe. And the training w was recognition. What is what does suffocation look like? You know, she didn't do the universal sign for choking, but there was obvious panic, like fear in the face. And and there was no second get like I immediately I I jumped up ran over to her leaned her forward whacked her on the back saw the grape come flying out like if i didn't if i hadn't gained that knowledge i'm fairly certain i would have just fucking froze like but because i i had the clinical hours i had i had done cpr on a live person i had you know seen bleeding i you know all that kind of stuff like it was th that moment of knowing like you got that checklist of like, okay, so, you know, at the time it was abc airway breathing circulation like airways closed how do you open the airway here's the steps Wow, just beat the crap, you know. So, they, like I said, like it wasn't life or death in the moment, but it could have turned bad real quickly had I not been trained um, with the knowledge that I had. So, uh, and I, I honestly think that uh, if if everyone did take at least a basic first aid course, because I mean, basic first aid is where you learn the tourniquet, and that's something about EMS that it, that changed while I was in it was it was really airway breathing circulation. And then now it's changed to circulation first. Like then if they're not breathing, then pump their heart. If they are breathing, then pump their heart. You know, it's like they're, they're, they, were, they changed it. And same thing with bleeding control. When I first started, it was apply a bandage and direct pressure. If it's still bleeding, apply more bandages, put direct pressure. Still bleeding, elevate the extremity above the heart. Still bleeding, now you put a tourniquet on. And EMS actually changed to the Put direct pressure. Is it still bleeding? Tourniquet. You know, so like, and and there's a lot of different tourniquets out there that now are even like when I learned it, I had to learn how to make my tourniquet. So using a regular bandage and a stick and all that kind of stuff. Now they've got the cat tourniquets that are out there and stuff like that. Like that's a very easy skill to learn, and yet it could be the difference between life and death in in yourself or someone that you know or even a, even a complete stranger. Like yeah, I've got I've got. I've got tourniquets in my car. I put a tourniquet in my girlfriend's car. I put a tourniquet in her parents' car. Like we've got tourniquets all over the place because Lord knows if you ever need one.
Yeah, that's one of the things that I wish people would understand about the firearms community, the 2A community, is how many people that are in it, you know, that are in the firearms community, whether it's an influencer or, you know, just someone who's the weekend warrior, how tourniquets and stop the bleed, that's a common thing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I think a lot of people that don't understand firearms, once again, think that firearms people are, you know, just irresponsible and, and everything. Like, they're more attention to detail of, of things like that than any other group I've ever hung out with. Yeah. yeah. I need to go take but, a course. That's what and I just took it, it could also even be something as simple, you know, like you look at the firearms industry from, through the, the eyes of the Democrats that they try and show you through the main media and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it just seems like we just we're just these gun toting Americans, you know, don't tread on me and ah, America kind of thing. But the fact is, like, when I carry my gun, I'm way nicer than when I don't <laughs> because I, I have a responsibility now. Like, I, I have a firearm. If someone wants to start a fight with me, you know what? Wasn't that important. You're right. I, I, I was in the wrong. You're absolutely right, dude. You know, like, I've walked away from more altercations or, or escalations um, when I was armed because I knew the responsibility I had as a firearms owner, and I didn't, I didn't want things to escalate. I don't want to have to use my firearm in self-defense, especially if it's a situation where I could just be like, you know, you know what, dude? You're right, man. I was, I was in the wrong. I'm sorry. And walk away. Swallow the ego. So, um, yeah, I mean, and same thing in the EMS world. It's like not, none of us went in looking for fights or anything like that. We're, we're there to help you. If you want to fight with us, then we'll defend ourselves. But we, we yeah, that's interesting. Touch on that, man, because I don't think a lot of people understand that EMS people get, they get attacked, you know? Uh, yeah, well, like I said, you know, no one, no one calls us because they're having a good day. And, uh, you know, whether or not you're seeing self-inflicted, inflicted by others or, or, or whatnot. But I mean, like a lot, uh, and I think taking medical courses too, for self-knowledge will open you up to a lot of things like that, you know, to understand and look for, yeah, what I know this person, they're not acting normal. So what's going on and how to kind of diagnose it. So one of the biggest things about EMS, I, I have never been in as many fights until I got on an ambulance and I did not expect that trend to go in the direction that it did. Right. But you think like that's terrible. Like, oh yeah, you respond to abuse calls and you respond to, to tasers and stuff. It's like, no, if you have someone that's a diabetic patient, for example, and they are hypoglycemic, so whether or not they took too much insulin or they haven't eaten or something like that, they can have a hypoglycemic episode, which means their blood sugar drops below a certain level that is acceptable for the human body. And it's an, it's a necessity for the, for the processes of the brain and oxygen and all that kind of stuff. Well, when they get to a low blood sugar state like that, they can become confused. They can still be awake. You can say something to them. They'll look you square in the eye, but you can say, what is your name? And they'll look at you and go watermelon, you know, like they are not there, even though they are still cognitive and active. And when you try and approach them to stick an IV in their arm or try and stuff a tube of, of sugar water in their mouth, Sometimes they fight back. They will, I've had full on like cocked, locked and ready to knock my head off swings taken at me in the EMS world. And it's not like I had the, you mother and wanted to knock them out too, because they're not, they're in, they're having a medical episode. So I have to be able to defend myself without becoming the aggressor. I just have to find some way to subdue them. Um, 
I was actually, I'm actually a third degree black belt in Taekwondo, which is more of an offensive style of fighting, but I also do know some defensive stuff. And then, you know, of course everyone watches UFC and we all learn so much from YouTube. Um, <laughs> But you, you do kind of learn certain things. I mean, I've had doctors show me how to how to try and take someone down that doesn't injure them, but is one of the safer ways for, for you to be able to handle a patient and stuff. You learn those in like your clinical rotations. The nurses show you because you'd have combative patients and stuff like. Yeah, I mean, it the EMS world, it's it's tough and you that's that's why you know there's always been these arguments of like oh well well women have a harder time in ems because you know what if some 300 pound dude wants to take out a 120 pound female like yeah you're absolutely right she's completely and utterly at a disadvantage but she also has some resources that you know uh, that are at her disposal um if anytime they feel unsafe they can they can call for law enforcement intervention um when they call for law enforcement intervention the closest fire station automatically will get dispatched as well so whether or not you get the rescue or the engine could have anywhere from two to four firefighters sometimes they'll send the whole barn out you know to your call and location as fast as they can um you know but yeah i mean and and of course there are those times where you just have to get into a fight with someone because they want to they want to get in a frisky mood and and there's no time to call the police because you're already on scene you didn't know what the situation was and, and that was another thing that was also misleading a lot of times so sometimes you'd get a call and it would be like oh you know patient complaining of a stomach ache and you would respond and well yeah they're they're having a stomach ache but they're also high on meth and now they see flashing lights they see a badge and they think you're the cops coming after them so they come running after you like whoa dude i'm here to help but <laughs> now you're in a fight because they're again not necessarily in the right mindset all they see is blue and red flashing lights a uniform with a badge and they want to fight kind of thing so it's it's crazy how much uh, abuse EMS workers get um, from the physical side, which again that can also affect the mental side too. But you know the other thing that um, really wore me down as an EMS worker working in Vegas for eight years was the amount of abuse that the system took. Like I think statistically in Vegas at least, and I'm sure it's probably the same in the U.S. 80% of the transports that take place by ambulance do not need an ambulance. What's, but, up, what's up with that? So the, the usual stigma is that if I go to the hospital by an ambulance, I will be seen by a doctor quicker. Oh, okay. So they, That's they're, calling, what people, they're calling out of a desire, not out of a necessity. Correct. Um, some, sometimes it was also like, well, if I call a taxi or I call an Uber or a Lyft, and I get there, I'm not, I'm not going to pay them because I don't have any money. Um, so I'm going to get arrested for using a service that I then didn't pay for. But if I call an ambulance, they're going to send me a bill at a later date, and then I just won't pay the bill. There's nothing they can do about it. because They can send me the collections, but I don't have money, and I don't care about my credit score. Mm. So there was a lot of that as an abuse. Um, there was also just the fact that uh, we, we used to call them frequent flyers. You'd have the homeless people uh, that would just go to the liquor store, get blackout drunk, and then make a conscious effort to go to a roadway and then fall down or pass out or fall asleep on the side of the road because someone was going to call 911 and say, there's a body on, you know, Flamingo and Las Vegas Boulevard. We respond. They're completely and utterly intoxicated. They can't get up and walk. They've got an altered mental status because of how drunk they are. We have to take them to the hospital. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there were times, I can't even count how many times I picked up a patient 
who was still wearing the wristbound from the hospital. They just left a few hours prior to me picking them up because as soon as they left, they went to the corner store, got shit faced drunk, and then went and passed out on the side of the road again. Uh, like I said, we called them frequent flyers. There were patients that like, as soon as you either read the notes or saw the intersection, you already knew who you were running on. And sometimes when you, when they change locations, you know, because like maybe they got transported to a different hospital than usual, um, you'd get there and you'd, you would already know their name, birthday, social security number. Like you had all that stuff memorized because you ran on them so often. And that's, that's one of the, the worst things to deal with because you, you could be running that call. And then while you're transporting that patient, hear something over the radio go off, like, you know, gunshot wound, offer involved shooting or, uh, you know, stabbing or drowning or something like that, that would happen in the same general location that you were in, but because you're transporting the, the hobo in the back that just couldn't wait to drink some more steel reserve and go back to the hospital and get some food and the free bed. Um, now an ambulance from a further distance is now having to respond, which is delaying the respond time, which is delaying the transport time. Like it, it really does um, affect the emergency situation. Um, it delays responses, it delays treatment and all that kind of stuff and essentially can also get people killed. But yeah. I'm, I'm there's hearing, nothing I can do about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing two things. One is that there's some incredibly broken people who know exactly how to, to leverage resources to their advantage. Uh, but not for long enough to make substantive change. And the other is, are, it's an indictment of the system as a whole because we don't have anywhere to send them after they're discharged from the ED, uh, the emergency department. You know, so we lack the um, step-down care that is required. And I mean, you—we're all from Nevada. You're in Missouri now, but you know, we're, we're talking about Nevada. Nevada's dead last in everything that matters, and uh, we suck at all the things we want to suck at. One of them is we've. For years and years, decades, we've lacked the political will to adequately resource that system. You know, so what happens with the system when we fail to resource it in an appropriate way? And when I say system, I don't mean legislature throwing money at it for crisis triage centers for, you know, a little bit longer care. I mean, workforce pipeline. Like, we don't have the bodies to staff the buildings, even if we could get a check scratched from you know, local casino magnate who just wants to do good. Okay, cool. You got a shiny new building now. Who's going to run it? You're pulling from mm -hmm. where? Your your department? You're going to pull from AMR? You're going to pull from the fire department? You're going to pull from my clinic? You know, like we're just shuffling people around at this point because we fail to invest in things like education, not just K-12, but higher ed and the intermediate steps. It's like not everybody needs a master's degree to do counseling and psychotherapy. I already said earlier that, you know, humanity got here somehow in its current form without me. So, Maybe we need to invest a little bit more in eighth grade uh, education to tempt people into uh, healthcare careers that don't require advanced degrees because for some people it's just not desirable. For others, it's not attainable. But in between high school and graduate level, there's a whole bunch of people who would love to provide care and can't because the system itself, whether it's .gov or it's the insurance companies, refuse to pay for those level of services. They don't think it's worth it. They are greedy because they need to make their shareholders happy because they got a fiduciary responsibility to those people. Um, but whatever it is, we've failed to act either as a community or politically to make the system robust enough to rehabilitate people fully so that they don't cycle through. And that includes prisons, by the way. So, mm -hmm. you know, you send somebody to prison and it's 
where's the rehab in prison? It's supposed to be a department of corrections. What are we correcting? We're just giving adults a timeout. And if they don't do some serious self-evaluation while they're in there, they're going to come out the exact same person they went in, if not worse. And it's the same with hospitals. You, know, you send somebody to the hospital, okay, cool, we, uh, we fed you, we got you sober, uh, and, and then what? Like, are we going to address the whole slew of things that got you to this point in life, or are we just going to turn you back to the same community, resources, or lack thereof, environment, bad influences that are going to enable the problem to continue? So you know, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's depressing um, because those are longitudinal problems. We've talked about this on the podcast before and on, on several other podcasts where it, things like that that require serious policy interventions don't get people reelected because the the return is longitudinal. It's far outstrips the next election cycle for the person who's in the decision-making capacity to pass the bill or uh, apply for the grant or, or ask for money from the feds to make it sustainable. Uh, nobody, nobody goes in, in for their next, uh, you know, campaign going, Hey, look what I did that you won't see for 20 years. Like that doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't get people to the ballot box. So, so the whole thing is just really inverted and, um, and, and it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and unfortunately we get people like yourself who are burned out. And then we got people who are the, the consumers of the product, not getting what they need because we've cycled the same people through. It's, it's really, really unfortunate. And at the same time, you got to address the brokenness. Um, how, well, you know, we got to figure that out. I've got ideas. What's your idea? Do you have, do you have a, you have, you have a magic wand? No, I have a crystal ball. It's Good. broken. Good. But. <laughs> I broke my wand. I haven't been to Ollivander's to correct it yet. But. Yeah, you know, listening to, to John talk about it, especially like the, the what was the term you used? Uh, um, frequent, frequent flyers. flyers. Frequent flyers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> frequent they have a card or, or like a login or what? How do they get points? Yeah, they, they got a tattoo that says, my name is, my yeah. birthday is. <laughs> no, but it kind of reminds <laughs> me of like my ex-wife who, who battled mental illness and the way of that. You know, at one point she became homeless and she would get arrested and then she'd go in and then she'd be released. She wouldn't hit her court date. So then there'd be another warrant because clearly she's mentally ill. So she doesn't believe any of it's real. And there's no, and it became rinse, wash, repeat. You know, they just kept putting her back in jail. She'd get released. You know, it reminds me of the same thing. Now she didn't want to go to jail, (laughs) but I mean, it just kept happening. And at that moment, there was no, you couldn't talk to her. Like, you know, if you did catch her, you found her, you know, you couldn't say like, Hey, you got to stop doing that. You got to show up to court because you go, no, I can't, I I don't have to, they can't make me, you know, like one of those things. So it reminds me of the same thing. Yeah. And you know, the, the problem, I mean, I think the biggest the biggest issue is uh, politics, uh, lawyers, <laughs> and money making. <clears throat> so the reason I say that is because, like you said, politics like they can't they can't make a promise that they won't be in in office to deliver on. So you can't say, okay, here's my plan, and in twenty years, here's what the result's going to be. Everyone wants to say, well, what are you going to do in the next four years? because I, I want to see results within four years of your presidency or your, you know, whatever term um, you got the lawyers because any, anything that was not done by the book, we're going to come sue your company and my client's going to get paid out because there's just mm-hmm. going to be a settlement. Right. And that's, that causes the stress on the system. Um, you know, so say, for example, 
you respond to a call for lady with a fever. And after you assess her, she says, well, I've had a fever of 101 for about an hour and I want to go to the ER. And you're like, Tylenol, take some Tylenol, <laughs> drink some water, get some rest. Like, you know, if, if it gets progress, if you get 105, then you might need to seek medical help, but like you could go to quick care for that or whatever, you know, like that you, if it starts to progress. So let's just say, for example, that's what you do. And then you leave. And in the process, that person then, you know, ends up dying for whatever reason. Boom. You're in a lawsuit because they called you, they wanted your help and you told them, no, you refused service and treatment and transportation. And the result of that is that my, my client is now dead and we, we think she would still be alive if you would have just taken her. Okay. So now that means everyone that calls 911 gets transported. Doesn't matter if you need it or not. Right. Um, Do- and then, documentation doesn't play into that at all. They can't just look at the, the record and be like, Do- doesn't meet standard. Doesn't, doesn't meet admission standard criteria. Well, so, and, and we, we used to call them the sun porches, um, basically, which is the ER waiting room. So you'd come in by ambulance and they'd say, take them to the sun porch and you would walk them to the waiting room, lower the gurney, and then tell them to take a seat and sign in and all that kind of stuff. So like they could, they could triage and, and facilitate the severe patients for not, but that's where the system again falls under the lawyer system. So, uh, if you're, if you're too drunk to, uh, to know who you are, what the name is, what year it is, you have an altered mental status, you automatically need a monitor because we got to watch your heart rate. Mm-hmm. We got to keep an eye on you. You can't get up and walk. So they might have to restrain you to refrain, to keep you from falling out of the bed and causing a lawsuit. Um, and the other thing, and, and this is where I feel the mental health world gets smacked so hard from the EMS side is if I call 911 and to the dispatcher, I say, I'm going to blow my brains out. I am automatically on the line for a mandatory 72 hour psycho uh, psychological evaluation hold. There is EMS can come here and not want to transport me all they want. Legally, the law enforcement is going to come here and say, we heard the recording or we heard you say you wanted to blow your brains out. So they fill out a form that takes your rights away to make medical decisions and puts it in the hands of the state. So now they say, it doesn't matter if you want to go or not, you're being taken and now at that point, uh, essentially, it's it's not kidnapping because there's a medical necessity for it, right? Well, the problem is that, yeah, a lot of the homeless people, I mean, they they could still be passed out asleep, and as soon as you'd wake them up, they'd look at you and go, "I want to kill myself." Hmm. They really they didn't have the intentions, but they knew if I say that right now, I'm going to automatically get taken to an ER where I'm going to have to be held for at least 72 hours. I'm going to have a bed for two for three days. I'm going to get fed while I'm there. And then if I can play my cards right, I'll get transported to a psych ward or a, a mental health facility where I can then long elongate my stay. No one. Nope. And, and that's where there's that gray area. Right. Because I can't say if he's serious or not. Mm hmm. I can't say that he's this time he means it, you know, so I have to take them under that that precautionary method. But um, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that if someone makes the threat to harm themselves that you shouldn't do anything about it. But there's no in between. There's no there's no uh, there's no screening. There's no robust screening to put in your hands, for example, because you're the you're the responding party uh, that say I would have the the skill set to be able to interview them thoroughly. Not that I could if they're intoxicated, because that's not viable either. It's there's there's no fidelity in the in the interview at that point. 
Uh, so you're you're more or less handcuffed to the the rigid binary of let them go or take them, and you're not going to let them go because of the aforementioned litigation. So you take them, which then clogs everything. Uh, man. Yeah. And then and then you have someone that. And, and, and that's where, you know, it's funny because, like I said, 80% of transports don't need an ambulance. And yet, I'd say probably close to 60 to 70% of the people that drive themselves to the hospital probably needed an ambulance. Um, I remember I was transporting a, uh, a patient that was not critical. I was driving to the, the emergency room uh, in downtown Las Vegas. And this truck comes zipping past me, cuts me off, turns into the emergency room. And my, my initial reaction is like, okay. They probably have a family member that just got transported or something like that or, you know, whatever. And they're just trying to get there as fast as possible. Okay, fine. You still probably shouldn't cut an ambulance off. That's kind of a dick move. But right in that moment, like if I had a family member that was like, oh, my God, dad just went into cardiac arrest. And, you know, he's at the, oh, yeah, I'd probably be driving a little fast, too. So I kind of understood. No, no. When I got to that ER, there were staff pouring out of the door picking up a guy that was covered in blood from head to toe because he had just been stabbed 20 times that drove himself to the ER. Like he parked the truck and then just fell out of the truck. That's all he had left in him, that his adrenaline was able to take him that far. And yeah, I'm transporting- I would have done that too because I've been, it's always been ingrained in my head, avoid the bill of the ambulance. Yeah. Right. Right. So like the responsible people avoid the bill because I, if I get a bill, I try, I really try my hardest to pay it on time and all that kind of stuff. Right. The irresponsible people, they don't care. I have, I don't have a credit score anyway. So what are you going to do? Send me another bill. Oh, Crazy. you're just, you're the one wasting the paper. Right. And so you got the people that want help and need help, but they don't go get it. Because they think, well, if I go see a psychiatrist or I go see a psychologist, I'm probably going to get billed for that. Um, if they, they take me to a facility to it's be true. treated we do, or we do bill for that. That's true. <laughs> right? Uh, but, like, no, it, it, that's the thing. Like, if it's an emergency situation, there's probably something in place. But if I willingly am seeking out the help, then more than likely you've got to have insurance yeah. or you're providing, you know, stuff like like. And that's the politics side of it is, like, the people that really need the help – you know, same thing, like, like, let's say, for example, like cancer medication. Why is it that that shit costs so much yet? Because they can, you know, because they can. Right. Yeah. Versus, oh, let's just let's just hand. Uh, what, what the hell is it now? I'm, I'm that's how long I've been out of EMS. What's the, the stuff, the opioid uh, Narcan? Let's just give Narcan away. That's just so save funny. All the I was going to say Narcan, but I thought you were going somewhere else with it. Yeah. I mean, that's it's Narcan's everywhere now. They're like, it's like a masks <laughs> buy a box yeah. of masks buy a box of narcan it's like this is our solution really we're going to treat the symptoms not the problem right and, and actually you create a bigger problem and that's the thing that i think some of these politicians don't quite understand is when you narcan someone you block the opioid receptors which means that that person goes out gets another fix they inject themselves and they don't feel any response because overdosed. the medication is still working yep so they up the dosage and the next thing you know they they drive the respiratory drive into the ground and they die. So you've created a bigger problem by just um, like, it was, and, and it was something I wanted to cover too, that the idea of medic medication is a fix. No, no, no. Medication is supposed to help you fix yourself, right? You take, you take hypertension medication. That doesn't mean you don't have high blood pressure anymore. You, if you stopped taking the medication, your blood pressure would skyrocket. The idea is take this medic medication, improve on your diet, 
start going to the gym and working out, work on your health so that I can start to lower your dosage to the point you don't need it anymore. Audience can't see me if you're listening, but I'm clapping and I'm raising my arms because I've been saying that for, for years and years and years about medication is, I don't even know if anybody knows what a shoehorn is anymore, but it's, it's a shoehorn. Like you, to, to get your foot into the stiff leather shoe, you use a shoehorn. You don't, once your foot's in, walk around with a shoehorn sticking out of your heel all day. Um, same thing here. We, we, we administer medication to diminish symptoms to the point that behavioral change can take place. And it's, it could be physiological medication for you know hypertension until you can correct your body's metabolism or it's psychotropic medication to diminish your anxiety so that you can think differently and not have anxiety anymore, but you shouldn't be dosed in perpetuity. That's not, it's not ethical. It's not, uh, effective. It could potentially be harmful because once your body builds up a tolerance, all you're doing is increasing dosage at that point. Uh, until when like, um, yeah, glad you brought that up. Yeah, it's 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 terrible, and and it's it's the same in depression. Like, it, it, don't get me wrong, there there are some very serious cases of depression that I do think are almost a permanent resident. Yeah, we're not talking people. outliers here. We're talking the 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 middle, you know, two or three standard deviations from the mean. That's that's what we're talking about. Most people yeah. who need medical intervention for whatever the problem is aren't going to be on it for life. And don't come at me with your diabetes. That's that's a chronic thing. I don't want to hear the diabetes analogy. Um, I hear that all the time, and it just frustrates the crap out of me. But at the at the beginning of the podcast, our musical intro is me with my disembodied voice saying, you know, mental illness is like physical illness. It can and should be overcome. Um, and for whatever reason, there's a, there's a group of people out there, who many of whom are in my profession, who would lop my head off if they got the chance because they don't like hearing that. And I think... If I were to spitball an answer, I think the reason that they don't want to wrap their heads around it and really believe it is because it requires hard work, hard work. Mm -hmm. There's no magic bean. It's just way more satisfying to give somebody a pill or prescribe an exercise that diminishes symptoms for some period of time. And, and then we get to cheer and high five ourselves and say, it worked. We fixed them. And it's like, no, first of all, that wasn't you. Secondly, um, that you didn't fix them. All you did was ameliorate a symptom. You didn't get to the problem. It's like cutting a, cutting the leaves off of an overgrowing bush. You're like, Oh, look, it's smaller. It's like, yeah, you, did you uproot it or did you just trim it? I'm, I'm interested in the root and most things have a root cause and, and we can talk societal systemic things have root causes also. Um, it's just way more easy and convenient, especially in our instant gratification world. Talking about election cycles, and you, know, you mentioned four years, but there's two-year legislative seats too, Congress, mm -hmm. um, where it's not, it's just not it's not satisfying these days in particular to look long term to the to the root cause mitigation, and it sucks. And I don't I don't want to be in that. I'm trying to work myself out of a job. Um, it's a little counterintuitive, but you know I, I say it again. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. If I have to do any other work besides this one just to pay my bills, and it means that I live in a happy, healthy community because nobody's ailing, I will gladly do that. I will gladly work myself out of a job, uh, and I'll go paint or something uh, or vacuum carpets for a living. I don't, I don't care because it means that we're not going to have people suffering, and my kids aren't going to be getting dirt thrown in their face on the playground, um, and I don't have to see bar fights. Um, but there's, there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of ego satisfaction in that, and there's not a lot of financial satisfaction to that. Um, it's, 
I don't know. I just I, I wish we would we would have a real come up and says a as a society as a culture to say, let's delay gratification and work on long term solutions and put the put the instant gratification aside for a minute. Uh, there's plenty of work to be done in the interim between now and 20 years from now. We can't we can't fix things 20 years from now if we're not even looking 20 years from now. Yeah. If if you're hungry and you plant a tomato plant, you can't expect to eat tomorrow. No. And right. If, and, and if even you do then, it, you, eat, you eat the plant, <laughs> and then your plant's gone. <laughs> yeah. A lot of that going on too. You know. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was. It, it's it's been, and and you know, there's also there's this balancing act that I I see going on in the in the world of medicine as well right now, which is the whole power shift of uh, money. So you, you look at the. Yeah, I had, well, let's not get you demonetized or whatever here. But there are certain things taking place. We don't. We that, don't get. We Arms Corps <laughs> funds this podcast. We don't. We don't rely on advertisers. <laughs> They're not so pull. you know, like, I I don't take a vaccine. Like I, I took the vaccine for polio, and I haven't developed polio. Polio. I know people that have taken the vaccine for COVID and then got COVID. So it's not a vaccine to me. I feel like it's more of a shot. Like it's like a flu shot. If you get it, it will diminish the symptoms and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but the the encouragement for everyone to take it seemed so much more uh, pushed and forced. I mean, episodes of Sesame Street are talking about the vaccine and shit yep. like Big Bird and that, right? Momo. Yep. And yet, uh, when I when I got to a point where I was in a financial tight spot and my pants were also getting tighter. I said, well, I better start making more money so I can buy more clothes or I need to start hitting the gym and lose the weight so I can just make these same pants fit again. Now, the easiest solution in, in a way is to just spend more money at the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Buy your national title. But the hard work was to go start working out and doing something. And that's when I got into hockey. So at one point I was like 270 pounds and that, that was massive for me. And I decided to make that change, right? And and there's a, a quote that I was told a long time ago, and it was that, you know, people people can change, but the only time they change is when the pain of change is less than the pain of what they're going through. And for me, I mean, that that shows just how self-involved and how much I think of my looks. But I was it was so painful to look at myself in the mirror and have to, you know, move around to get my whole body in the mirror. Oh no, John, you <laughs> um, fat shamed yourself. I, yeah, well, actually, you know, it wasn't even that. It was uh, so my mom. My mom's the Asian one on the on the family on my side, and uh, you know, she sees me and she's like, "Oh my God, John, you're so fat now." It's like, eh, you know what? You say stuff like that all the time. That didn't bother me. What bothered me is when I went to a family dinner with uh, on my dad's side and my other grandmother, who is the the nicest woman in the world. She's one of the most powerful women in the world I've ever met. I mean, the, the stuff that she'd gone through and survived, it, it just uh, she blows my mind. Um, I went to go give her a hug and she went, wow, someone's been well fed. Okay, mm. now I'm fat. <laughs> when the nice grandma makes that comment, I know I'm fat. But the, the point is, I could have said, well, you know what? I'm already this big. Going for a run sounds like a bunch of loaded crap. So I guess I'll just go buy some, you know, 36 waist or 38 waist pants and not resolve the issue and not face it. But instead, I made the decision, okay, I'm going to start working out. So actually, that's how I got into hockey because I found that was one of the quickest ways to burn calories i mean jesus if you've ever tried to being from vegas and and whatnot with the vgk craze that that took place um and and how many ice rinks op opened up and the you know attendance for hockey class and stuff skyrocketed um 
I started doing stick and puck sessions, which are just these freebie, like you just go out there with your own equipment. There's no rhyme or reason. Everyone just shows up and you do whatever, right? Um, and the, the one session that they had at the, the rink I used to go to was at like 4.30 in the morning, but it was 4.30 to 6.30 with stick and puck. And then that was when classes and all that kind of stuff started taking place. Plus my daughter had school. So I was like, great. It's a great way to start my day. I'm going to go there at 4.30 in the morning, skate around for two hours, go home, shower, take her to school, and then go to work. Well, what I found was my first time ever going to the ice, I didn't need two hours. <laughs> 35 minutes and I was wasted, like about to vomit puke with how sweaty and over. Like I, I wore like my Under Armour cold gear and stuff because I'm like, I'm going to be on the ice. Uh, 10 minutes into my skating session, I wish I was naked and swimming across the ice. Like I was just burning alive, right? Um, so I got a Fitbit. Just because I want, I was curious to how many, how many calories, how high my heart rate went and all that kind of stuff. And holy crap, a two hour stick and puck session with like every, you know, 15, 20 minutes, a five minute window to sit down and relax. I burn 1800 calories. Wow. Almost a full day's worth of calories is what I could burn in two hours of stick and puck. So that was, and, and, you know, I'll say this about when, if you want to figure out how to jumpstart your mental side of losing weight. I can say if you invest in something like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or something like that, something that would track your heart rate and your, you know, your um, metabolism, all that kind of stuff, your estimated calorie burn. For me, what that did was it showed me what I burned. And because I knew how much I burned, I would go home that day and be like, hmm, I could swing by McDonald's and get three double cheeseburgers and completely eliminate what I just accomplished. Or maybe I'll stop somewhere or go home and, and, and have a salad with a little bit of fish or something like that. Like it, it changed my mental output to the idea of saying like, well, I did all this work, so I don't want to waste it all on this junk food because then what was the point of doing all that work? But the other thing that it did too was it allowed myself to reward myself because now I could look at it and go, dude, I've burned 1800 calories and it's nine o'clock in the morning. I got a full day to go. I potentially could burn four to 5,000 calories today, I'm going to go get a donut because mm. it's not going to be that big of a deal for me to have one donut today because I just did a shit ton of work, you know? So the mental side of it did not make it become like this, like, no, no chicken breast and broccoli all day long for the next 21 weeks until I'm clean and healthy. And it was like, it gave me a buffer to say, Hey, you know what? Go, go get something sweet. Enjoy something because you did quite a bit of work and it's not going to completely blow your, your diet out of proportion kind of thing. So, so I felt like for me, like I said, mentally, it, it almost encouraged me to want to eat healthier. Cause I was like, damn, I burned 2000 calories this morning. Like, hell yeah, let's go home, have a protein shake, you know? And then, then, um, you know, I'll, I'll eat some almonds throughout the day to keep me burnt over. And like it changed my mental mindset, just knowing the, what I had burned and what I'd accomplished and how I could, adjust my diet accordingly so and even then if you decide to go get a mcdonald's burger or something like that great you know that's six eight hundred calories yeah it's it's up there it's not the healthiest for sure but if you put the work in you're still going to get some results and something's better than nothing do you uh did you cross paths with jason griego at all wolverine yes oh yeah yeah he was yeah, he was, uh, he was on our show uh gosh a year and a half ago probably we should we should check back in with him but 
Yeah, he's he's big. Yeah, guy. yeah. I used to see him at like the Vegas Golden Knights games and stuff. Yeah, I, think, I think I saw him once. That. I saw yeah. him like once or twice at the at the ice rink, um, and we chatted a little bit uh, about that. But yeah, good good dude. Yeah, he's doing a lot of good work with veterans groups too. There's yeah, like a veterans hockey league or something. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. They got some awesome jerseys too. If you can find him on Instagram, or whatever, and, and see the jerseys that he wears, like they're they're pretty badass. So my takeaways uh, before Mike gets to ask his uh, final question are. Um, I need to do stick and puck. Uh, I don't know if my back and my knee will hold up, but that sounds like a great time because uh, I've never played hockey uh, outside of like floor hockey intramurals in college, which was far too long ago. That sounds fun. Um, I need to take a, uh, an intro level uh, EMT class, uh, first basic first aid. I need to do that. I need to start into three gun because uh, I do own all three of those guns and, I, and they're not really being used for what they could be. Uh, my stock equipment is good enough for pistol competitions <laughs> and, uh, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. This is really, really cool. Um, one of the, I think one of the most comprehensive, best, uh, interviews we've had. Well, thank you. No, I, I appreciate it. I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to discuss some, some serious things along with the jokes. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, as long as you can have a good time doing what you're doing, then, then honestly, you know, they say, Oh, you'll never work a day in your life. I can say this, like, don't get me wrong, traveling and, and doing the product training stuff and shooting matches and stuff. It's, it's tough. I spend a lot of times in hotels and airplanes and stuff, but man, I, I get back from a competition sometimes. And I'm just like, cool. I'm ready to go back to work. Well, what about vacation? I, I, I was just at a match a vacation. for three days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm good. I'm, well, I'm ready to go back to work. You, you know? know what? I, I do have a question. Um, how does the how do the sponsors make their money off of you guys? Do they is it just considered marketing? Is that it? Like they just throw money out there and uh, put their branding out there, and it's like it's a branding marketing thing, or do do they actually get dividends or something from that? No, yeah, for the most part, it's it's a marketing marketing event. Um, it's support showing showing support of the sport means that when it comes time for that consumer to upgrade their gear or whatever, they you know, whatever was blasted the most in their face or they had the best interaction with, gotcha. um, that's typically who they'll run to. So, I mean, for example, like I have, <clears throat> you know, Vortex Optics is a, a sponsor of mine for my optics. And when when people see me, like one of my first things that I, I try to do when they start asking me about gear is saying like, hey, here, give it a try. I let them try the product. I let them use the product, actually see what it's like, fire a couple rounds, you know, whatever. Um, and then, and then, explain the company to them because it's one thing i've one thing that i found about the firearms industry is you can have a great product and shitty customer service and your sales will suck mm. you can have mm -hmm. a mediocre product with excellent customer service and your sales will grow um, and you can if you can have an excellent product with excellent customer service then you're a home run and to me uh, uh rock island armory I, I think is a company out there that, that uh, has really stepped up their game in the firearms world as far as quality reliability and still being cost effective for sure. Um, Vortex Optics is another great company for me that, I mean, their optics are absolutely spot on amazing. Um, everything from their range finders, their red dots, the, the variable scopes and stuff. But the best, the best thing for me, uh, and when I, when I look for companies to try and back myself with, it's gotta be about the people. Um, the, the people that I know between Rock Island and Vortex and all my other sponsors out there are some of the best people that I've ever met in the firearms industry. And that's why I will back them. It's not, it's not because the product is the best or because I, I get it as a sponsored per I love the people that work at that company. And I know that they love their customers. 
and that they want to make sure they're taken care of. You know, Vortex Optics has one of the best warranties out there for optics. I mean, you can you can look up stories of people saying like, oh, I was out on a hunting trip. I left my binoculars on my truck and I completely ran them over. I contacted Vortex and they just sent me a new pair. Like, oh, well, okay. what company does that? Other companies would be like, well, so did you put the block, the binoculars back in the case that we gave them to you? Like, uh, okay. And then, and then you just ran over them and you went in your truck? Like, okay, well, that sounds like you probably shouldn't be using fault. binoculars. <laughs> so here's here's a discount code for you to buy another pair. Mm. Well, like, that's kind of messed up. You know, it's like, not not to say that they're not at fault, but like, when have you ever left a drink on the top of your car? Yeah, yeah, you know, shit happens sometimes and you forget. Like, Vortex has been one of those companies that, um, I mean, time and time again, I've heard stories and I've, I've had experiences where it was like, something goes down, something breaks, something just didn't work the way it was supposed to, or I get educated and I found out it was working, it was me that was idiot, and I used the wrong screws to screw it into my gun or whatever. Or you didn't um, clean your firing pin. But, yeah, exactly, right? But like, it's like, let's let's get it taken care of. Let's, let's not sit here and argue over who's at fault. Product's not working for you. Let's see if we can figure out why not or get you a new one. Like, you know, so. so you're you're not just a passive logo on a hat or a jersey. You're a company ambassador too, and you're having these conversations. That's pretty cool. Absolutely, that's neat. I think I think that's the the biggest thing, and and those are, again are some of the the reasons why I think people will also back that product is not just because of the the results they see you getting, but if you have an interaction with someone that represents the company, it's almost that person should be a representative and almost a, an extending arm. Um, for people to be able to interact with. And if they have a good interaction with you, the company must be as good too. Because why would this nice person, this awesome person that's very clear in communication and, and doesn't bullshit me and doesn't just try to sell me a product, like why would they be with this company if they were a bullshitter? Mm -hmm. You know, Not to say they're not out there, but if you can have a good interaction with someone, then a lot of times they will, they will want to buy your product, not just because it's the latest, greatest or whatever, but because they want to support that company that is willing to put that kind of... Uh, a team out there and then show and back up, you know, the words they say. Totally. Yeah. Ar Arms Corps is Arms Corps Rock Island is a, to me, the number one gun company on the planet, just simply because like, not only because of the support, but at one time, like Eagle Imports was considered a competitor of, of Rock Island, right? When I owned Eagle, you know, but mm -hmm. what I love is when you touched on the people, even though we were competitors, we used to help each other. You know, Martin would call me. I'd call Martin. Hey, what, what are you going to pay? I remember Martin called me one time. What are you going to price your, this gun at? Which was a direct competition of that gun. He said, why don't, instead of us playing this runaround game, let's just try to come in the same. You know what I mean? It was like, it was right. friendly. It was good. We helped each other. We helped each other right. a lot. And um, when I started Walk Talk America, you know, it was like support from day one, which to the listeners, I want people to understand that, you know, I'm a big preacher of corporate social responsibility and Arms Corps has that. They're not just a gun company. You know, they, they, they truly care. That's why they were one of the first people to put the, the you know, free and anonymous mental health screenings in the box because they understood the whole concept of we got to take care of our customers. This is beyond just me sell you this firearm. You know, um, being uh, so bold to step out and be the first ammo company to put it on the side of the box, the free and anonymous mental health screenings, like to do it without having to be told to do it. And that's that's what's really awesome about Arms Corps and Rock Island. So, you know, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's there's a lot of things about the you know um, just uh, just earlier this year, my father passed away um, pretty pretty fast and furiously from from cancer, 
And, uh, you know, I, I think most companies, when you say something like that, they probably just say, okay, yeah, you know, take, take time off, do what you need to do kind of thing. But Martin kind of took it a step further of like, all right, you legit, tell me what you need. We're going to get it taken care of for you. Um, you know, I ended up, I had to, I had to fly to California all of a sudden. Um, he was like, put it on the company card. Like, we're going to, we're going to take care of you. I don't want you to put yourself in a financial hole because this, you know, family emergency that's taking place. Um, so, so Martin helped support me get to California to spend the last moments with my dad before he passed away. Um, and it was like, <clears throat> I don't know how long I need to be there, Martin. He was like, just let me know, like, let me know how much everything's going to be, you know, kind of thing. Um, when I had to go back to Vegas to, to, for the funeral service, it was, you know, Hey, I, obviously I had some family to stay with, but I didn't have a car. He was like, come swing by, pick my car up. Like, don't, don't, you don't need to rent one. Like, you know, I'll, I'll give you my personal car. And it's like, there, there's just, like I said, there's, there's those things that take place where it, he didn't have to, I mean, and, and even then, like he could have gone the easy route and said, yeah, just, you know, put the company card, but it was like, no, 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 you don't like, if you want, if you want to like cool, but otherwise I've got a car you can use and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, I don't know. It's just, you know, he, he, he backs up what he says he's going to do. And I think he backs his products. He backs, he, he, he runs his company the way he runs his family. I don't know. I, it's actually something I talk about in my product training for work where, you know, when you go on social media, if you like, if you have a problem with your car or your water heater or something like that, right. And you complain about it to the company on their Facebook page or Instagram page, like, yeah, you might get the customer service department involved or some, you know, marketing person involved that can forward your information and blah, blah, blah. Uh, if you go to any of the 1911 forums or Rock Island Army, Armory forums on Facebook and you see anyone that's having an issue with their firearm that hasn't been addressed by a gunsmith or something like that, Martin will not DM that person so it's a private conversation. He will post on there like, hey, sorry you're having an issue with my product. Here's my email. Here's my phone call. Get in contact with me so we can get it squared away. Like what CEO does that? What CEO cares enough to give his, like most CEOs I know have little peons in place to help block all that bullshit from, from ever reaching that, the CEO's ears. And yet Martin has no problem being proactive in dealing with the shortcomings that, that take place. You know, mistakes happen with as many guns as Rock Island. I mean, Rock Island is the biggest and largest uh, 1911 manufacturer in the world. We manufacture the most things are going to get out the door that maybe aren't entirely up to par, but to, for Martin to be able to say like, well, you know what? It was probably the shooter's fault or it was the gun. It was the delivery. Like, Nope. Yeah. You got an issue. Let's get it squared away. And then if you don't get it squared away, contact me so that I get it squared away. Like that to me says quite a bit about a, a guy that runs his company um, and, and gives a damn. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, John, thank you for coming, and uh, this has been great. Uh, how do you tend to your mental health? Uh, I don't. Just lots of no. <laughs> um, you know, it's there's a lot to be said. I think that um, don't get me wrong. I, I I'm not going to say that there's obviously a, a, a one pill to fix all things, but there's a lot of things that you need to recognize when it comes to your mental health. And one of the things that I think most people maybe fear or are just too lazy to address is the fact that, like we said before, it takes work. Just like a healthy relationship takes work. Taking care of yourself is a relationship with yourself. I was in a dark place. 
I uh, polluted my body with alcohol and cigarettes and, and all that stuff like during my divorce. Because in that time, that's what I wanted to do. And then eventually I turned it around. But it was it, it took work. The easiest thing to do is crawl into a bottle. It's crawling out after it's empty. That sucks. Right. So don't be afraid of putting in the work to do what needs to be done. But as far as the mental health side, also in the positive light, so that's kind of the negative that you turn into a positive as far as being positive. I think it's um, like I said, every now and then we all change, we all develop, we all grow, um, accept the change and always push yourself to try something new because you never know what the next thing is you're going to fall in love with, whether or not it's a hobby or something like that until you give it a try. I was never allowed to play hockey as a kid because my parents thought it was too violent of a sport. Um, I went out and bought hockey gear. I jumped out on the ice and I absolutely loved it. And I had some great times playing beer league. Um, and it, it never would have happened if I was too scared to, to give it a try or to just jump into it. So um, get out there and, and take your opportunities to try try new things and, and you'll grow from it. I guarantee because you, you're, you're going to grow either way. One is that you learn you love it. Two, you learn you hate it and you never want to do it again. But you can at least then say, I did that once and I wasn't a fan. Or absolutely, that was a great time. You know, so um, audiobooks, another great thing to, to get into because I think there's there's a lot of motivation out there that sometimes I used to think I'm a pretty positive person until I started listening to some audiobooks. Um, there was one that I just recently read called Endure by a guy named Cameron Haynes. And uh, it was a book. It's not even a self-help book necessarily. It's just him telling his story about how he became a professional bow hunter. But this guy, uh, he, he essentially runs a marathon a day. Like his level Why? of fitness is just. Yeah, so for him, <laughs> yeah, he talks about being a professional bow hunter and how it's elk. So he goes out and he hunts elk. But for him, it's like, I want to get to the deepest, darkest part of that mountain where no one else is willing to go because that's where they're going to be kind of thing. So he pushes his, his physical to make sure that he can make the trek up the mountain, get a good shot, and then be able to pull it back down, you know, and not have to necessarily, not that he doesn't rely on others, but it was those things where like, there's, there's mornings where I wake up and I'm like, I don't really don't feel like working out today. And then in my head, it's almost kind of like, dude, Cameron Haynes is probably on mile 12 right now. Like you can do 30 minutes at the gym. You can go down to the garage or you can go run for 30 minutes. Like, you know, it's, it's not that. So it audiobooks for me is another way that um, like I said, whether or not it's for entertainment purposes or educational purposes. But um, that's another thing that I do like to do is if, if I can find a good audiobook, then I'll listen to it even when I'm inside the house, not just driving around in the car and stuff. So uh, but mostly, like I said, it's, it's really just invest in yourself. Whatever you invest your time, your money and your energy into will become important. And you are important. So invest the time, energy, and money in yourself. That is a great place to end. Thank you. John, John tell me. Tell, oh, well, we're not Where done. can they find John? Oh, no, geez, I forgot that. John has, but, but yeah. John has one of the best, it, it, for, as far as gun culture uh, Instagram pages. It's fun to, fun to watch you. You're funny. You know? oh, well, I appreciate that. I, I like to think I'm funny. My girlfriend sometimes calls me an idiot, but. Uh, <laughs> Join the so club. you can find me on you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I have a Twitter, but I, I, that's a hitter. You know, until Elon officially takes it over, we'll see what happens there. But uh, yeah, so Instagram, I'm McLean John, M C C L A I N J O H N. 
and then same thing with Inst- or, uh, Facebook. Just search John McLean. Um, there's a fan page and there's my personal page, but I, the fan page is just kind of like, it's too much work to do two profile profiles there. Uh, but McLean John is probably where I'm, I'm most active on Instagram. So um, that's, that's the best place you could find me. And as if anyone ever has any questions or anything like that, please, you know, don't be afraid to shoot me a comment or, or a DM or anything like that about any of our products or, or questions, even about, getting into the competition world or something like that, I'll be more than happy to send you links and and help you guys get started. Awesome. Uh, Thanks for making the time twice. Uh, (laughs) Well, I didn't make it the first time. (laughs) He pretended to make the time. And then Mike and I were sitting there for about 15 minutes thinking, no, he's probably not going to show. And then we, and we chatted for an hour and 15. So we had the world's most boring podcast with ourselves. We should have recorded it because it was not unproductive, but I don't know that anybody would have listened. Uh, well, thanks on behalf of uh, Armscore, of course, and uh, Rock Island Armory, on behalf of our Zephyr Wellness team and family here, on behalf of the entire Walk the Talk America family, thanks for listening. Share this round. We wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. I feel so sexy now.